You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Welcome to a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and I'm joined by two very special guests today for a conversation on wealth inequity. Our first guest is Kelsey Smart. Kelsey works with folks who want simplicity, clarity, and integrity in navigating the financial landscape and aims to make financial information as accessible as possible. Our second guest is Heidi Ruggiero. Heidi is an advocate for women and children in crisis and works in the nonprofit housing industry. Thank you both for joining me today. Uh, Kelsey, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit more? Yes, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, basically, I am a financial planner, which means that I work with folks on their investments, their mutual funds, their insurance, and it's interesting for me because being a financial planner, I am directly working in capitalism. So I have a very complicated relationship with how it is that I earn a living. I care very deeply about social justice and it's an area that I am actively exploring as to how can I work within a system, capitalism, that I do inherently believe is unjust by its very nature. I know I'm not going to dismantle capitalism either in my lifetime or work towards doing that, but within it, can we work with social responsibility? Can I make financial advice, which is not very accessible to all folks across the board? Can I make it a little bit more accessible? Can I bring an element of equity, of social justice, of inclusion, of diversity? to financial planning. And so I aim to do that both on the employment side by offering equitable, thriving working opportunities in a safe space where we lower barriers, as well as a place for clients that is more accessible than more traditional financial planning. Happy. Wonderful. Looking forward to discussing that a little bit more. And Heidi, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Heidi. Um, it's so funny because you basically covered everything so much more succinctly. I have worked in and participated in um, social housing and um, worked towards justice for women and children in crisis. I'm a mom of a number of children and a grandmother to one and just feel like partnership with um, education and, and understanding and other fields is really necessary to help uh, level the playing field for all participants especially those that have perhaps just come into a, a new scenario where there's no real clear navigation, like women in children crisis. Wonderful. Uh, it seems like you're both going to be speaking from quite different perspectives, and that's what I love to have on the podcast is a variety of different perspectives so we can explore the issue and help the audience to understand where they stand on, on all of these issues that we talk about. So my first question for both of you is quite basic may not be as simple to answer though. What is wealth inequity? I view wealth inequity as, I'm gonna use the actual word in my answer, I view it as an inequitable opportunity to experience wealth or even financial security. So for many people, the idea of wealth isn't even on the table. For many, it's simply, a, a question of am I financially surviving? Can I financially thrive? 
can I achieve financial security? So there are so many layers to what financial wellness might look like. And the fact that for one person, it can look so vastly different from another. And I really want to do away with this idea that hard work creates wealth. I mean, that could be an entire podcast or book of its own, really. Your industry is about helping people to create wealth from wealth, right? As opposed to helping people to work for their wealth. So, to, yes, in, in a nutshell, if I were to say what I do in a textbook sense, I help folks in the areas of liquidity, which is a fancy word for having money available for emergencies and opportunities, retirement, financial security if you're sick or hurt and something were to interrupt your income, and financial security in the event of death. So those are the four areas I work on. And if I'm explaining that in a textbook sense, that's what I do. Who has access to those services? Certainly somebody who is barely financially surviving, those services are not going to help them. Having money available for emergencies and opportunities is not even on their radar. It's trying to get the next paycheck. But money for retirement, not on their radar. Money in case they were sick or hurt and unable to perform their job, money for the next generation in case they pass away. So my work is inherently only really helpful for folks who have some degree of financial safety, financial security to begin with. What I cannot speak to and what, what was, I was so, I felt really honored when I was asked to speak on this podcast, but I also felt entirely ill-equipped to do it because what I can speak to is such a minute slice, I feel, of, of a human experience of inequity or wealth inequity. I can speak to such a small piece of it. I don't have lived experience in poverty, for example. I can speak to inequity in access to financial security. I can speak to inequity and lack of diversity and inclusion and true welcoming in the financial services industry. I can speak to that but I can't speak to wealth inequality outside of Canada, for example. I can't speak to global wealth inequality except for information that one might find on Google. And there are fascinating figures and very tragic figures about wealth inequality globally. But what I can speak to and what I'm, what I'm honored to be here to speak about is that, that small wedge of what I, what I can speak to and perhaps where I can affect a small amount of change in the things that I can impact in my lifetime. Yeah, and I think that's a really important perspective. Uh, when we're talking about social justice issues, at least for the first episodes that we're doing, they're based off of a social justice coloring book, which is focused on very broad issues. So I don't expect that any of our guests are going to be able to speak to the entirety of any of the issues that we're talking about. And in the future, I think we'll need to start digging deeper into some of the sub-issues within these. But uh, for now, just Having both of you here to discuss a general overview of what uh, financial inequity looks like is super valuable. And uh, thank you both again. Heidi, did you have something that you wanted to add in terms of what wealth inequity means to you? Yeah, um, and I think primarily for me, it would be simplistic points. These are not uh, exposure points for people who live in poverty. They're not, when you say liquidity, they're like so a glass of water. And I mean, that sounds oversimplified for me. That is a standard reality. I mean, I do know what liquefied means only because of exposure to business is not my own. Certainly not my own personal finances. 
Um, and something that occurred to me, which I know none of this is prepared for, and you may want to edit this out. If you were to want to walk someone through with zero knowledge and who was living in poverty, but had access to income and some not disposable income, but could be reallocated income, would you have suggestions for them to start those steps towards not building wealth? Because I do know that there's this huge discrepancy that we've already touched on, because there is an element of needing to build your financial stability for survival. And that is where we're living now. We're looking at a working class who's essentially in poverty. And to get out of that, we may need to merge those two sides in, in application towards personal finance. So I was thinking like, you know, if you want to, like we could have a little project of that and see what would that look like, especially because if somebody were to watch this, then there's a little bit of a playbook. It's a little bit more insight. I might ask some questions that your normal clients certainly wouldn't ever think to ask because they're not living that reality. And I just thought I'd throw it out there to see if that would be appealing. She's nodding. So I think that living in the lower mainland certainly as a single mom, certainly as someone who um, my current income structure is determined, ironically, statistically, to be a living wage, but I do not find it so. Um, I have a number of dependents and I have some unusual social circumstances. Um, and I work in the nonprofit sector, so my income is not likely to improve any moment soon. Um, I do benefit from certain, uh, the word be financial incentives, like I'm going to be going back to school and tend to attend law school. I do anticipate that to be paid for through programs that I qualify for. So I will have that benefit. Um, where I won't be leaving there with a large student debt, however, I'll be going into humanitarian law and will not be making a lot to make up any difference. So I'm expecting this sort of income structure to continue. Even as my children become older, I expect to need to assist them as well because of where we live with any sort of financial movements. Um, and we're not looking at a huge amount of money. I'm more than comfortable to share what I make, um, if that helps you. Um, and also our expenses to live here, if, if that's something you would normally do. So is that appealing? Would that work for us to discuss in that manner? Or how do you normally approach this kind of thing. Um, so it sounds like you're almost proposing creating a case study from your Why don't we do it? experience. It's totally up to you. Yeah, I'm perfectly fine with that. And I'm more than happy to do that. So yes, we can go whatever direction you would like to go. And if we end up launching into a bit of a case study, by all means, and we may, and I have, I have no problem saying I don't know the and I don't know the answer either. Yeah. And that's why I was thinking this might help us kind of have better answers to your questions. I also think it would be an interesting one for me to be able to jump into as well as someone who has sort of gone about dealing with my finances in a not necessarily normal way. But very different than Right, say, so like thinking outside yeah. of the box because I was low income for a very long time and when you're low income and you're trying to get out of being low income, Sometimes you have to approach finances from a sort of unique perspective, thinking outside of the box. It's a lot more risky, it is, because mm -hmm. you're gambling your survival on the hope that you'll improve your situation. Well, and so much of building wealth is predicated on having wealth to begin with. And, you know, uh, so a lot of my thought process was, how do I get myself enough wealth that I can then use that wealth to create more wealth, right? Because it's bridging that gap. It becomes tricky. Once you have $10,000 in the bank, pretty easy to make money at that point. But when you have $10 in the bank, it's not so easy to get yourself out of that hole. So my next question is 
around the difference between equity and equality, because I would very consciously make this episode and this page of the Social Justice Coloring Book about wealth inequity rather than wealth equality, because equality is almost never equitable. And a lot of that in this context relates to the fact that purchasing power around the world is very different. So if you were to split up all of the money in the world among everyone, you still wouldn't achieve an equitable society. Um, do either of you have thoughts on what difference between equity and equality looks like? She does, but I will answer because I'll lose my train of thought. Um, so something that I frequently stated um, and it's an interesting reality point for us, especially in North America, that in even the most impoverished scenarios, um, there's a food bank line. I can go get in and I will have food at least once a week. That is not commonplace in every country in the world. We're still in a percentage of wealth and sort of systemic benefit because of where we live. Now, it's not obviously when you're referring to wealth, it's not like most people think of. However, we have access to benefits because we're in a wealthy nation. And so that equity scenario, when you apply it globally, um, changes the entire structure, changes the formula for looking at things, everything. Um, but if we're looking more locally, it's, um, it's more like making sure that things like discrimination or marginalization aren't additional factors or barriers to uh, someone finding employment, someone gaining education and things like that. And then I think that's more where it can play locally. But you had a, enthusiastic response to the question. Yeah, so coming to understand the difference between equality and equity was very impactful for myself in going on a social justice journey, which is a lifelong journey for me. I don't consider myself to be a socially just individual now. I, you know, I started realizing that social justice is a systemic issue and the more you go into it, the larger the rabbit hole and the more unjust everything is. When, once you start realizing that, it, the difference between equality and equity really is impactful. And the thing that the image that really first got me thinking about the difference is, and, and unfortunately I don't know the name of the artist, but it's a picture of three humans standing trying to watch a baseball game and there's a fence. and and they're trying to see over the fence. Equality would be giving each of those people a milk crate or something, something of the same height to stand on. The person who is the shortest is still not gonna be able to see over the fence. The person who is the tallest is now able to see over the fence because they've been given this milk crate or whatever to stand on. Whereas, so you, equality, everybody's been given the same leg up, so to speak, but still only some people can see the baseball game. Equity would be giving each person something that's tall enough to allow them to see the baseball game. Then you can take it a step further and go, why is there a fence in the first place? But that's, you know, that there, there is the, the rabbit hole that one can go down. But that's what equality versus equity is to me, is equality is providing the same accommodations for everybody or the same opportunity for everybody or the same expectations of everybody. Whereas equity is recognizing individual differences between people, recognizing systemic differences and aspects of folks' identities that intersect to create individual scenarios of marginalization or of privilege. 
and meeting folks where they are. Now, can we change an entire system? Can we overthrow entire systemic oppressive barriers? No, maybe the three of us cannot while we're here. I mean, you never know. But having the conversation time. can make more difference than we know. And so for me, what equity means is in the small sphere of the universe that I can have a little bit of control is I run a business. I can effect change in the employment opportunities I offer. I can effect change in the way I offer services to clients. What services I offer to clients how I bring accessibility in. Um, so I don't have all the answers right now, but I know that equity as opposed to equality needs to be at the forefront. And that means providing different things for different people. Right. Um, I think that was a great answer. And in essence, humans are not equal. We all have various different strengths or, or uh, what we may perceive to not be strengths. And if you treat everyone equally, you're not going to create that equity uh, for that reason. This episode and this page in the social justice coloring book is all focused on equity because I think personally that we should all be striving to have a more equitable society. I don't think we'll ever get there. Just I don't think that humans are capable of creating a completely equitable society. Right. I think that's something that we should strive for yeah. because we should always be trying to get closer to that. Uh, that's it can be a bit discouraging almost it's because i agree with you are we even capable of achieving equity and if the answer is in fact probably not and it probably is then what's the darn point right but but there is a point i think just because we can't achieve equity a utopia so to speak does that mean we can't effect change does that mean we can't act in a more equitable manner Will it be perfect? No, but let's have these conversations. Let's sit in discomfort of how we have benefited from privilege and how we might more responsibly spend our own privilege, etc. I think it affects enormous change. And I think it's, um, I don't know if it's a unique viewpoint. Um, I've personally observed small actions by some people impacting whole nations and um, I mean, that's why we find certain stories inspirational. That's why we find human behavior that is above and beyond motivational to us. And just demonstrating that towards even one person, you never know the trickle down effect. Um, I mean, ultimately you could say perfection is impossible. So why do we bother with anything? Right? Or you could um, say that, you know, investment in anything is yielding returns. It's some kind, either good or bad. And so if you're investing in equity, that's investment in equity. And if you're not investing in it, what are you investing in? Right. That's, what, that's what's getting invested in. So I think as humans, it's just, you know, we, we don't get a magic wand and we don't get that in any facet of our lives, but we do get a litany of choices and outcomes that we can, you know, move in a certain direction as best we can. You can make things worse. You can keep things the same or you can make things better. So I, I yeah. think we should always be striving to make things better. Agree. And if I may, there's a there's a quote that I like. There's two quotes. One I'll I'll read off here. Never believe that a few caring people can't change the world. For indeed, that's all who ever have. That's Margaret Mead. And the other, I love that. Is the only thing better than controlling money and power is to control the efforts to question the distribution of money and power. 
Sounds very 1984. <laughs> Can't get up in that. So <laughs> that's what we are doing. We yeah. are questioning the the we are questioning the distribution of money and power. And I think the fact that we are having this conversation, I don't have all the answers towards equity. I can't create equity in my lifetime, but I can work towards it. And simply by being here and questioning the distribution of money and power, I think we are we are effective change. Absolutely. I yeah. think too that there's a sense that people often believe that say that quote, you're supposed to question the distribution. And the average person hearing that is gonna say we should question the people making those decisions. But really what needs to happen is all of us agree with the idea that they're making all the decisions. And that's kind of why I was saying to make it approachable and reality-based for people who aren't living with wealth to say, I actually, I also have access to question this distribution of wealth. is actually probably a bigger move in change than one would achieve otherwise. Um, so I think that's really valuable. At what point, if any, is it unethical for a person to bring in more money? When it gets gross? I mean, I, I, I'm sure people would love a figure thrown out. I think that if you're exploiting other people um, to gain that money, then that's where the problem lies. I don't have a problem with people who are wealthy. I don't. I think that every single person, poor or rich, makes choices of what they have and what they're going to do with it. And I've seen people that are less advantaged make very selfish self-oriented choices that weren't necessary, and I've seen rich people do the same thing. It, it isn't... There's less about how much money a person has I think as there it is isn't how they use their money. Of course. I think that's a known factor, though. I think that as a person operating in society, um, we kind of all get where that is. Like, it, if you literally can't carry your bag of gold down the street, and somebody is like, can I have a penny? And you're like, no, you're horrible and I'm not giving you a penny. You might have a problem with yourself you want to look at. But we don't see those scenarios. What we see is our own self-justification for not giving when we could. We have a thousand reasons why we don't want to do that. Oh, I need that money for this. I need that money for this. Um, and oddly enough, and I hear this time and again, and it's going to be hilarious because it's going to be at every single odds with anything you've ever heard. People that I've spoken to who often don't have experience with wealth. Um, they weren't reared in a wealthy family, they weren't uh, around wealthy people, but they would give the shirt off their back. There's actually a reason for that, and then we'll see returns. And those people tend to do okay. It's the people who won't let go of anything. There's no exchange with society. There isn't. You exchange something, then typically another human being or whatever is going to want to give it back to you in some manner, shape, or form. You see it with children, very young children. Look at the ball. Call the well, here, take the toy. We're kind of geared towards it. And we forget when we're grasping onto our pennies that part of our survival actually does require us to be in exchange with our community, with people around us, and whomever else we're dealing with. And when you see it demonstrated, um, especially by people in the poor community, they will see returns. And there is a really neat observation because I think in you know, a more wealthy community, you don't see it as much. It's viewed very differently, oh, it's charity, or, um, oh goodness, I've already given, or whatever. And there's, there's not the same flow of, of resources or finances. And so I, I find it all unique, and I've now forgotten a question that I've tangented off on, so. Well, I think that brings up a good point because I think it relates to, 
and now I've lost my train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you just... I'm trying to remember what you just said. Yeah, I just that was a good moment. Those who don't have a lot tend to give a lot. Oh, it was. Uh, yeah, it was going to be that. I think a lot of people have lost touch of what money actually is, and it's a stand-in for trade. Yes, it's you know it used to be that you would trade your potatoes for a goat or something like that, but then people went, "Well, I don't want a goat. I want something else." But the person who has that thing that I want is not willing to make that direct trade. So what do we use as a stand-in so that I can trade something that this other person is going to want and get the thing that I want? And money was that. But it's kind of become something else through capitalism where we've lost touch of that direct correlation to trade because no one is putting in enough goods and services to become a billionaire. They're using other people's goods and services so to make the themselves a billionaire. Yeah. Oh, it was the gross. It was the, when does it become not okay? Right. Where, yeah. So where does that line get drawn? And I mean, I think a lot of people would agree that the line gets drawn somewhere before you get to be a billionaire because that wealth is, um, you know, a lot I of think people, the trajectory is incremental and then you're continuing to exploit to attain being a billionaire. That would then. Right. You might also fall in a billionaire, you know, passion. Yeah, yours. you could. But I like if you're, say, the head of a huge corporation mm -hmm. that's making billions and billions of dollars of profits, you have a choice of whether to pocket that money or redistribute it to yeah. the people that are helping to bring in that money. And if you're pocketing it, then you're exploiting those people. If you're redistributing it to those people, you're no longer a billionaire because that Not necessarily. I'm sure you know of this guy. And maybe it's made up. I don't know. I read it on the internet. But the guy that owns the company, he made sure that all of his, instead of taking some massive bonus, he redistributed it. And it's, found, gra it's gravity payments, and he increased the minimum wage of every single person. In his company. But then his company was doing exceptionally well, and it then exploded again, and now he's going to be in the same position again. So it's an interesting case study, certainly, because if you were a business owner, you would want to pay attention to that, certainly. Um, I'm sure it wasn't just that cut and dry, but that's clearly some facet of that worked well. Um, but then that's also what I'm talking about, the flow that I'll see demonstrated in, in people that have less wealth, where, you know, I'm going to share this and whatever. And then there is this return that isn't what you expect when you're studying finances and you're studying wealth. That's not what you expect to see. In fact, every single book about wealth that I've ever heard of would have said, oh, those people now are just not going to work as hard because you're paying them so much. You're going to lose money. Your business is going to go under. And I believe the entire world believed that's what was going to happen. And then he single-handedly proved that that's not what happened. And that has to make us all reassess that our own biases may well be preventing us from attaining wealth as well as distributing it properly. I think, you know, I don't think there's a business owner out there who would make the choice to not grow their business by helping their employees do better if they knew that would be the outcome. So what is preventing them from trying it? I mean, that guy did it. It's a, it's a mentality it of scarcity as opposed to a mentality of abundance. Mm -hmm. And I, to answer the question of at what point does bringing in more money become wrong? Is that the question? Yeah. To me, it's, it isn't a specific, oh, once you hit $500,000 per year of revenue, that's wrong. It's, 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 not a, it's not a number. It's, to me, if you have the ideas, the resources, the business processes, the whatever it is that's going to bring in massive revenue, good on you. That's excellent. That can be terrific. How are you going to use it? 
are you going to use that system that you have, the ideas and the resources and the whatever it is that you're manufacturing or service you're providing, and pay folks a minimum wage, pay folks a living wage, pay folks a thriving wage, pay folks a lot more than what they might earn elsewhere, provide a generous benefits plan, are you going to invest in that company in a meaningful manner? Not pay folks what it will take to make them stay. Are you going to share? Are you going to participate in wealth redistribution? And Heidi, you brought up, I think it's gravity payments that you're referring to. And not to not to make these these folks out to be heroes. I suspect they are still making a fair shot oh, they more than are. the because they're intelligent business. Yeah. Though. So that model is not a failure one. They didn't go, oh, this will help me ruin my company. They looked at that and said, I actually believe this will work. I'm going to do it. And yes, there was risk involved for most entrepreneurs and large brands. It's hysterically risk-taking. Well, we're so, talking also about the actual income, right? Because mm -hmm. if Richard Branson's saying, I'm only making $70,000 yeah. a year, that's yeah. the income his company's paying him, but it doesn't include the shares yes, that he exactly. has in the company that have gone way up. Yeah. But I mean, I think I, it's, I think it's, it's, it's you know, how much... How much more is an executive or a business owner, how much more is that person making than the next highest paid employee? To me, that's largely where this question might be answered. And of course, there's multi, it's multifaceted. It's not just, are you taking care of the people in your company? It's also, what are you doing for humanity and perhaps for the greater good? But that's one way of measuring it. And, and Heidi, as you've mentioned, is it, are you exploiting others for profit margins? For profit margins. And I think the line's going to be different in a cap capitalist system as opposed to some other form of system because the way that our system operates is sort of like a pyramid scheme, right? Where you have to have someone at the top who hires employees and that's kind of how your businesses grow and get bigger and hire more people and you bring in more income and your business gets bigger. But if that wasn't how things operated, if you were to sort of revert back to a more trade-like uh, service for service type situation, I think the line would look very different. No, that's true. If you look historically at things that happened, like say during the Great Depression, I don't know that money was really being utilized heavily, but you were still still seeing some significant exploitation, some utilization of the factor that some farmers were struggling and the other farmer happened to be okay, so they would pay like you know a quarter of the value of the food, knowing that the neighboring farmer was going to lose his farm, they'd be able to pick it up super cheap. And you saw some great land expansion happen at exploitation of others. I don't think money is the only means by which you could exploit others for profit. Um, I think it's, it's... It's not, but it's just the, the way capitalism sort of raises certain individuals up. And in order to lead a company, you're essentially bringing in profits off of the backs of all of your employees. The more people you hire, if you're keeping the percentage that bringing in the same for each employee, the more people you hire, the more money you make, so the greater wealth you hold. And that, like, I, you know, that, that's going to be sort of uh, the case in pretty much any system, even if you were to live in a socialist system or a communist system, there's still going to be people at the top who are distributing the money and figuring out how it all works. And that's why we sort of never get to that point of actually having an equitable society, because equity and capitalism don't really work together. However, I, because you're right, um, even in a family structure, you can have a parent and you can have children doing chores. And if a parent was going to work an hour
hour and they're being paid $30 an hour, they're not going to take $30 out of their pocket for their time, nor are they going to hand $30 to their child who would take an hour to do the work. There's factors involved with that that aren't exactly equal to what we see in society. But that's why I believe that only equity can be attained through access and edu education. So a lot of what you've said about um, removing barriers with discrimination um, and other factors of societal, I think are really key. But that's also then breaking it down with an understanding of, you know, being trauma-informed. There's, like, people that I deal with, and certainly I was a victim of a significant amount of abuse that was attached financially, and that was very intensely linked to, linked to myself and my children's survival. So anything other than what I have determined is a wholly safe action with money is way different for me or any other person in that experience than another individual who's like, well, here's my money in my bank, what will I do with it? It changes things a lot. And so if as a society we want to make change that creates equity, we have to each individually in our arenas look at how do we remove barriers. So just a weird non-related point, in family law, there's this move right now to help different um, counselors and, and justice providers to be trauma-informed. Same with the police force. I mean, a little too little too late, but we're working on things, right? So trying to insert the understanding that not every person, even if on paper, looks the same, that their life experience inhibits their ability to do well without these additional, like you said, equity, the different milk crate sizes, um, and breaking it into pieces that are understandable for them. And I think that's really key because there's a huge chunk that isn't provided to a person if they didn't come from wealth, and that is the management of wealth and creating more wealth from wealth, and there's a big piece that's just missing if you don't start with wealth. Um, but what do you do if you do want to make society better, and you do want to work harder and see a gains from that, and you do want to put something away for your children or create a legacy that benefits your community, um, most people aren't equipped with that information because it's only made available once you got a million dollars in the bank, I think it's got to be at least near there, um, or some sort of like liquid amount that you could invest. I know years ago, it was like, and this is 10 years ago, I was told I needed like twenty five dollars to $50,000 before bothering to go to a financial planner. And <laughs> she's reacting, so maybe it's different. But that was based off of an expectation that that money would be coming in from a factor that then disappeared within the breakdown of my marriage. So. My point being that what was available to me in those circumstances, which I took for granted and was like, oh, well, then we'll avail ourselves of this at that time. You know, we both had life insurance and all the things that adults are supposed to do. But then when you see a breakdown in a family structure within a society, and then there's no steps to take to kind of, I didn't know what to do. The way I had been taught was like, okay, you and your husband, now granted I'm old and traditions and blah, blah, blah. You make these choices, and these are the reasons you get life insurance. Is because when my kids pass away, you can still pay for your children's schooling because you'll have to go back to work now. Yeah, like I mentioned, traditional. And now it was all different. Now all of a sudden, everything was different. Everything I knew was gone, and on top of that, I didn't have the information or have any idea how to go get it. Um, it would never have occurred to me to call a financial planner and go, hey, does any of this still apply to me? Because it, I would have assumed it did not because it didn't fit in the parameters of what I'd ever heard of it before. So I think really that accessibility and the education, and I know it's like, I mean, probably not the most sexy career. You probably aren't like, hey, I'm a financial planner and have people lining up at your door being like, I've always desperately wanted to learn how to not use my money for things I want, but to put away to plan for later. 
unless they're wealthy. But the people that like I'm dealing with, it's like, okay, so you're saying to me that I shouldn't give my kids school lunch that day because I might later be able to not pay this much money for this thing and I could have something that was more fiscally responsible. It's a very difficult leap. So anyways, I don't know, another tangent, you can edit all that out if you want. <laughs> well, coming back to the comment that I made around wealth inequity and how it relates to capitalism, the reason I wanted to focus on capitalism is that we're discussing all of this with the understanding that we're not going to change the fact that we live in a capitalist society within our lifetimes. I, I, I doubt it. Right. So I want to recognize that these discussions would look different potentially if we were operating under a different system, but we're not. So we're going to focus on capitalism and, and how it relates to that. And that brings me to the point around the difference between wealth inequity and wealth equality. Because if you're talking about equality worldwide, I put some figures together here. The, if the world's wealth was evenly distributed, every person on the planet would have $68,750 worth of assets or net worth. Uh, and the average person would also be making $7.25 an hour. These are all Canadian dollars. So do these figures surprise you? The, the, the first one didn't, the second one did. $7.25 an hour. Yeah, the second one did because I don't understand the sustainability of that staying distributed equally with that being what everyone would be paid. So basically what I did was I took the GDP of the world mm -hmm. and I divided it for a year, divided it up between everyone in the world, and then divided it up again as if it was being calculated in terms of a 40-hour work week. Right. So you're including a lot of people who don't actually work. Okay. So they're they would be having some kind of income, but it wouldn't be coming from them actually working, whether they're a senior on surviving off of disability, uh, whether it's uh, a child having their parents take care of them. Um, I didn't account for any of that. So it's not that everyone would be earning $7.25 an hour would actually be higher than that. Um, but if it were to be distributed equally among everyone, right. that's what the number would be. And What's shocking about the, the figure for me is that it's below minimum wage right. in both Canada and the United States. Well, and it's actually, a, uh, or sorry, yes, below minimum now, wage yeah. in the U.S. because yeah. it's Canadian dollars. U.S. minimum wage is seven fifty, I think. Which are dollars stronger. <laughs> yeah, they're not, so yeah, theirs yeah. would be more around like the nine, nine, ten dollar marks maybe. Yeah. yeah. So it it's quite shocking because... I think most people are aware that somebody working a 40-hour work week on minimum wage, minimum wage is not a livable wage. Not on the North Shore, not in the Lower Mainland, not in any other community. So even minimum wage is not a livable wage. And yet, if you were to distribute an hourly wage or an hourly income, whether earned or not, amongst every human on Earth, it's lower than minimum wage. It really illustrates how unequal it truly is. You but also then it have comes to factor in billionaires because they're driving. So if you think about the fact that $7.25 an hour seems low um, because it means that a lot of the world is living in poverty, it's actually amplified quite significantly by the fact that a lot of that wealth is tied up in billionaires' offshore accounts, as opposed to 
being actually distributed among the population. And that's why 55% uh, of the world lives below the poverty line. And, and then, of course, the conversation about equality versus equity, because certainly I'm sure a lot of listeners are going, well, wait a second, even if we were to somehow theoretically provide that income to each person, that wouldn't in fact be anywhere close to equitable because $7.25 an hour in a country where that purchases a whole lot more versus $7.25 Canadian in Canada or in the United States. Um, I mean, you can buy a, a house in Oklahoma, for instance, for about one twentieth of what it would cost to buy the same place oh, yeah. in Vancouver. So $7.25 an hour there is going to go so much further than it's going to go here. Yeah, in the States. For sure. But and even if we were to adjust for equity, theoretically, it still really does demonstrate that if, if there were an equal distribution of wealth, or let's call it money, because in that sense, it wouldn't in fact be wealth for everybody, it would just be money. It really goes to demonstrate that I think a lot of folks who are earning enough to survive and thrive in a community likely are not aware that they are in a minority. Folks, myself included, I earn enough to live a thriving lifestyle. I am not a billionaire. I am not a mega wealthy human being, but I am in a vast minority compared globally to my peers and in fact compared nationally to peers. So here's here's a fun one is if you own a house in Vancouver outright, you are among the top one percent in the world. And normally we deem like any literally any house in Vancouver, you are in the top one percent in the world and that's because and you mean mortgage free. Mortgage free. If you free. own a property mortgage free. Yeah. It's, it's around the million dollar mark. If you have a million dollars or more, you're in the top 1% of the world. And in combined assets, though, correct? In combined assets, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, someone who owns just a house in Vancouver and nothing else is still top 1% of the world. Just in, a condo and a nice car. Right, yeah. So, money in the bank. It's not like many, many people in Vancouver would be considered top 1% in the world just by nature of how ridiculous our housing market is right now and how much more we earn here as opposed to other areas of the world. But what I find interesting about that is that people in Canada and the US will demonize the 1%, but they're talking about the 1% in Canada and the US without realizing that they are those people that they hate if you look at it on the global scale. I mean, they won't look on a global scale. That's just how it is. We're not geared towards it and our cultures don't really, I mean, Canada much better than the States, don't get me wrong. Our cultures don't really encourage us to view ourselves as global citizens. We've been feeling really good about ourselves being inclusive and less biased and everything on a national scale. Um, and maybe it's like one of those tiered things we have to get up to the next level once we master that. I have no idea, but I don't find that most Canadians view their fellow man outside of Canada as a determining factor of their own wealth. It's just kind of a known thing. There are poorer countries and we can choose to or choose not to take accountability and responsibility for their well-being. Um, I mean, as a person, I would love to see it more. I just don't see it frequently enough. I certainly don't engage in it myself a lot. I'm not going to these other countries and trying to help them with their infrastructure or something. So 
just that alone, if we were to look at only Canada, um, then we have these vast discrepancies based on where you're living. And something that might be of interest, because it's really only pertinent to social housing, is that they will not put social housing anywhere except, say, in BC, Metro Vancouver, one of the most expensive places to live. will never, ever get out of poverty if you stay here based off why you ended up there in the beginning, because you will never be able to afford to move somewhere else to own property, <laughs> own a car, frankly, because if you're making minimum wage in Vancouver, you cannot pay for insurance, gas, and parking. That's your entire pay for the entire month. So these systemic structures also, and I'm sure it was with good intentions. Hey, if we keep them all here, it'll be easier for us to give resources or allocate funds, or we won't have to have employees spread out everywhere. But what we've been doing is actually generationally dooming them to poverty. Um, and I say them, but like I would be considered in that as well. It's anyone making less than what would be required to put aside, what would it be to buy a property in Vancouver with not enough historical credit, probably more than, I mean, certainly more than it used to be. But I would, I would say it would be next to impossible. It would um, take 25 would years for someone on a, a property income to gain that much savings and then to keep their credit well and to continue to be gainfully employed and protect. So, you know, it's, I mean, just, you know, the credit aside and, and income mm -hmm. aside, you need to have like $300,000 in the bank because every every place is above a million dollars. And once mm -hmm. your place is that expensive, now you need to have 20% down, yeah. right? So it just becomes exponentially right. difficult. For sure. And for people who've never had a mortgage or who frankly don't have credit, refugees, uh, newcomers to Canada, a lot of times women fleeing violence, who have young children, got into those relationships very young and many of them didn't have a bank account and their finances were entirely run by their partner who was abusive also financially. So you see huge discrepancies, which takes some years to kind of catch up on to your basic level of what I think society expects. Well, why aren't they here? Well, it takes some time to get there. And then once they're here, well, you know, the compatriots who maybe didn't have that circumstance of being a refugee or a newcomer or fleeing violence or whatever it may be. I mean, it could be a many, many things that could put somebody getting very sick or something and having a long recovery. All these disadvantaged moments um, then kind of accumulate into, okay, well, where do we go from here? Where are solutions if the average person who is a middle-class person who didn't have these disadvantages doesn't know about building wealth? Um, I mean, just saying building wealth is a foreign phrase. Like, I suppose, like, for financial planners, you throw it out a lot of times, I were to walk into my group of friends and be like, oh, I'm going to be building wealth. They'd be like, okay, you're insane. What are you talking about? And I feel like, you know what? There, there has to be smaller bites and things that can be done because it's down to the individual. My capabilities as an individual with the same amount of money is not going to be the same. Say you with the same amount of money. There will be advantages and disadvantages on either side. So what does equity look like then? It's going to have to just be that the accessibility and education is available and that the biased barriers are then works to be removed. We can work to remove those biased barriers. We can't maybe change the whole world or globally affect change or whatever. We can certainly find case studies that would remove those barriers. I know that a couple of years ago, I want to say it was during COVID because it was crazy and no one heard about it. There was some project where they went into the downtown east side and gave a certain number, not many, like six or seven individuals at $10,000 and said, we want to see what happens. And they were shocked at the outcome. It was fantastic. And it was so much cheaper than what we're just dumping into systems that are systemically oppressing people in poverty because it's not solving something. 
They're not giving the information. They're not giving the education. What they're doing is relying on a system to barely survive and then not be able to let go of it because any step in either direction is instant, like, can't survive. So I think that, you know, I'm not suggesting we run around paying people $10,000, but please do because I'll get in line. But it's one of those things where how do we really remove the barriers that exist societally? Um, and I, I bet with some intention and collaborative shift with different people in the right places and the right times, and I don't mean government agencies who like to go, we have given nothing if they are fine. The right factors being involved, removing some of those barriers and really making it known would maybe make enough of a difference that we could see some improvement. Um, and honestly, I think in any of these large undertakings, you have to look very small first, like affect the change and get your case studies like very small neighborhood or you know your town hall meeting like wherever and then as you show success and you're building on that success and you're recruiting more people to kind of assist with that success to start trying to get a different viewpoint out there and so by doing things like that i think we could remove some certain barriers that i'm telling you people with barriers don't know they're there and don't know what to do to get around them because they don't know what's on the other side either so anyway. there's also the difference between the real barriers and the perceived barriers. Or the ones that are put in place arbitrarily by whomever. So one of the things that I aim to do in my business, which again, it's not going to, it's, it's not going to overturn capitalism or all the inequities of the world, but I, I do hope that it helps to remove some barriers is in, in financial planning, there's sort of this expectation among clients, among the general population, that the more money you have to invest, the lower your fees are going to be. There's this expectation, yeah, and it's a reality. Is it this a reality? Oh, so, yeah. I thought it was when so I so paid thousand in my uh, RRSPs, they stopped charging me management fees. So, oh my so, gosh, I didn't know that. So there's an expectation that, the, you know, if I... So first of all, some institutions have a minimum investable amount. We will only work with you if you have 10000 or or 100000 or a million. Hmm. Um, I never have and I never will have a minimum, invest, a minimum investment requirement. Some of my favorite clients to work with are those who start with nothing. Perhaps they start in debt. Perhaps they start with a little bit. Maybe they're setting aside $25 per month. Maybe they're setting aside 500 a month. I don't know, but some of my favorite clients to work with are not, they're not large clients. They're starting somewhere. And some of the folks who I cringe when they call are the folks who have six figures in their investment account. So it's, it's not, it's not at all about how large a client is. Now, of course, we earn more revenue, the larger an account is. So how we are compensated is based on assets under management. We earn a percentage and it's transparent to clients what their percentage is. Now, clients are accustomed to a format where the larger my account size, the lower my annual percentage. Different institutions are free to do whatever they like. They might say, we have a 1% annual fee, and that's for assets up to 500000 or we have a fill-in-the-blank. Institutions are free to do what they like. I envision, and we'll be implementing this over the next, it's a, this is sort of an, an interesting pivotal spot for me in my career because I've really decided to, to head in this direction in general with on a variety of levels, but one of them is the fee structure. I'd like to turn it on its head. No, why is it that this is just one more thing that caters to the hoarding of wealth? And again, speaks to, 
I do have a complicated relationship with how I earn a living. I do help wealthy people become wealthier. And yet, I somewhat have an ethical issue with it if good is not being done at the same time. So it is a complicated relationship I have with it. But I'd like to turn that fee structure on its head and go, here's the, here's the default. It's 0.9% per year. Have your assets managed. No questions asked. If somebody would like a lower fee, we are permitted to go down to 0.25% per year. I'm not allowed to go lower because my mutual fund dealership also needs a cut. 0.25 is the hard bottom. <laughs> so 0.9% will be the default annual fee. If somebody needs or wants a lower fee, they don't have to explain to me why. They don't have to provide proof of assets, proof of income, anything. If you are going to have a lower fee, you let me know. It can be 0.5, it can be 0.25, it can be 0.8. That way, if you don't have anything to prove to me, but if you are facing adversity, it might be invisible. I don't need to know what it is. Maybe I do know what it is as part of your financial plan. Maybe I don't, but I don't need to know. If you need a lower fee, done. There's also a $50 annual fee, which goes to the mutual fund dealership. If you need that fee covered, it is done. No questions asked. The reason I am able to do that is that the more large accounts I work with, and that's why I, I don't want, I, I'm not aiming to be this martyr that works with tiny clients and barely brings in any revenue and can't, because that doesn't help anyone. But if I can work with large accounts and folks who are paying the higher fee, it allows me to work with smaller accounts paying a lower fee, ones where we are covering $50 annual fee. Again, it's just a tiny thing that I can do to help that person that maybe can set aside $25 per month. But if they're paying a $50 annual fee, that's eating, that's eroding a ton of their savings. It makes no sense for them anymore. So I'd like to make the service accessible to folks who are saving $25 per month and might need to access some of that during the year. And it's not being eroded by two months worth of their savings of a $50 annual fee. And I truly believe there, I truly believe there are folks out there who will be more than happy to pay the 0.9%. And I'm taking inspiration, and I'd love to give credit where credit is due. I'm largely taking inspiration from Autonomy Fitness. It's a Black-led um, personal training. It, it's a, it's a, a Black-led personal training studio. And her pricing works that way. She charges... She has a, a standard fee for her personal training, and then she has a discounted fee, and then she has a generous fee. And if you feel you are able or willing to pay more, you pay more. And if you can't pay the full price, you don't. And I went to her website, and immediately, I am very fortunate. I am not struggling to make ends meet. I went, I'm going to pay the generous fee. I love what she's doing, and that's what I'd like to offer with my services as well, is the standard fee is 0.9% per year. If you need a lower fee, no questions asked, done. Need the $50 annual fee covered? No questions asked. Done. If you would like to pay the generous cost, pay 1%. If you can do it on a portion of your assets, you can do it on the full amount. And a lot of people are going to think I'm nuts for doing this. They're going to say, well, why wouldn't it be 0.25%? That's ridiculous. And I don't, you know what? Some people might abuse it. And I honestly, some... I would feel uncomfortable like going into you and being in a position where I could afford to pay more than that. I would feel uncomfortable. Well, I can't afford it at all, and I feel uncomfortable accepting the lowest amount because somebody else may be less able to. And so I think it really just that's really valuable feedback, though. That's yeah, that's valuable. Feedback. And I've been in that position before, where like I could utilize this. I we have a therapist who's amazing for my children, and 
was like, oh, it's okay, you can. And I was like, absolutely not. You were $160 an hour, and I'm not going to give you $25 a month, which is I have available right now. Um, but she was very frustrated with, but it, there's an element of, if I, if I needed to, if they needed it, absolutely. I would have been like, look, sorry, here's your 25 bucks. I need you right now. But it was just a matter of waiting five months for it to roll over again. And I thought, you know what? I'm sorry. There's, there's this, the same necessity for a business owner to pay a living wage to their employees is the necessity for us to not take advantage of the system that's assisting us as well. So there's, there's responsibility on both sides. We expect the system to improve. And that's my viewpoint on it. And I so think, do you think, having said that, do you think a system like this could work? Oh, I don't know. It would work in your industry. And certainly yeah. it will be catered very directly to what you experience as a workable solution. Mm -hmm. I think sliding scale fees are very common in a service industry. I think that their baseline often is what the dues and fees are that they're required to pay out for the individual. And then the rest of that is kind of your prerogative based off of what you are able to do or feel comfortable or appropriate doing. Um, and I think that's a pretty typical approach. Um, there's, it's, you're going to encounter clients that I think it's a, it's a lot more individual. You'll experience scenarios and I'm just speaking from experience. I've had lawyers donate $50,000 worth of services and they did not do that to everyone or for everyone. It's not something they offer. So it's going to be, it, it gives you some freedom to really choose who you'd like to invest in. It gives you, everyone has a currency. I'm just going to back up and tangent because everyone does. And it doesn't matter if you are poor or you're wealthy or if you come from money or if you don't. Every single individual does things for a reason, um, either to gain more assets or to help more people or to simply feel good inside. I know someone who's very wealthy who just really loves seeing people eat when they were poor. So would donate lots of money towards that gets lots of satisfaction, more so than they would have funding enough a children's hospital. It just was very important to them. And every single person has that currency. Um, and so for you, seeing people flourish in a, in a manner that they wouldn't have had access to before may be something that brings so much joy and satisfaction to your life that you're the one that's receiving. And then for you to accept money on top of it wouldn't work for you. So that's very individualistic for you. And it's probably likely for the fitness uh, lady that you mentioned as well very individualistic and also something that she feels very passionate about. Um, you feel very passionate about a living wage and probably a number of other things, but you invest in them in whatever manner appeals to you at the time. And I think that I think that's what it's one. Yes. Like, and I think that's, that's the thing that I'm, I'm pointing out is that the individual situation, it requires each individual to take full responsibility wherever on the spectrum that they are and to make any real change. That's all we can really voice that we want to see. We want to demonstrate it ourselves. We want to see it in others. We want to encourage it and inspire it and motivate it. And I think that's what you're doing with your business. I think that's what you're wanting to do and heavily invest in. I think that maybe some trial and error will be fine, but you're going to land in a space that you want it to be because that's what you're passionate about. I think what I love about it is it really does turn whole financial structure on its head in, in some ways because so much of every aspect of our society is about making wealthier wealthier um and you basically turn that on its head and said i'm going to make my money off of the wealthy and then distribute that to people who are in more need of that money which is what the government should really be doing but i think it's really admirable that you're wanting to take that into your own hands and try to make that happen and i'm, I'm banking on the fact and a hope that there will be 
wealthy clients who want to invest in this as well, because it's an active choice on their part as well. They'll go, oh, I could be getting this service for a lower percentage elsewhere because of the volume of my assets. I would fall into that lower pricing tier. But so I'm, I'm banking on the fact, yeah, I'm banking on the fact that some people and not everybody, this will alienate. You'll find some people, people that's their they currency. Want, they yes. want to see other people thrive financially and they want to be part of that. That's right. But you'll get the clients you want. Exactly. And that's my hope. And it might fall flat on its face and they might go, see, you do have to offer wealthier clients lower fees. And I'll go, yeah, well, you were right, but I tried. But that's the... That's I mean, you can also as a sliding scale in the same magnitude, though, because then you can pick and choose based off if somebody's just a jerk. I'm sure you can be like, I'd rather not with your marketing. Oh, certainly, yeah. So, but I don't think those folks are going to be drawn to the to the business. Um, there's also the aspect of not necessarily having to say what your rates are. Like a lot of the sliding scale businesses that I've heard of will say, "This is our rate. Let us know if that doesn't work for you, and we can figure something else out." And that way, they're not saying. You could get this exact rate if you just ask me for it. It kind of adds a little, an extra layer in there, which may not be what you want because it then becomes a, a perceived barrier. But at the same time, it might be necessary in terms of making sure that you're not having people taking advantage of it. Hmm. Yeah, um, and that—that's my hope is that where so it will really be a collaborative effort amongst. Wealthy clients will be participating in my ability to offer services to wealthy clients as well as to clients who are working poor, who are unable to work to earn an income, for example, who are facing microaggressions or barriers or discrimination in accessing financial services elsewhere, or they're simply intimidated to do so. I hear that a lot of, yeah, thank you for making this approachable. And I have a lot of work to do in continuing that journey, but I do hope to make it approachable and less intimidating. I was about to ask you uh, how you reconcile your work. I don't really discuss that. I delved into that already. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask uh, you this okay. question, Heidi. Um, so you work as an advocate for women and children in crisis. So you've seen how wealth inequity can negatively impact people. I'm sure. Um, how is this having an effect on you and, and others? Okay, so wealth inequity or the systemic allowance of wealth inequity? Whatever wealth inequity means, how is it having an impact well, yeah, on your it, life? And yeah, others? I mean, it impacts my life, but I, I prefer to respond from it, um, what I've professionally observed, which is pieces that, as society, we are not aware of, and we just function under this illusion that this is how things work. Um, but in any situation, and ironically, you do seem to hate the capitalism, and this is inherent unto it. Um, so say the government goes, well, we're going to give $60 million to end homelessness. We're going to build a building or something such. Okay, here's $60 million and go do that. So then they assign a person to manage that project. And that person goes, so I just hire contractors to come in and they build this, and then they hire people to do this and that and the other. What have I observed is... You will end up, a lot of the nonprofits will end up with buildings that aren't sustainable by donations. So say you have a large nonprofit and they are in the 30 to $40 million range of donations a year and they're managing their properties and they're doing their best. They are making zero profit off of all of the rentals that they're 
dividing, and yet they still need to provide um, basic maintenance. They have to uh, manage systems within the building to be in compliance with the city's you know, various bylaws and things like that, and to get insurance, and to basically run it in a manner that is ethically correct. Um, but then say that there's a toilet that breaks and the individual who was hired to come in and install plumbing, instead of just going down the street and buying some things from a plumbing distribution place, special ordered them from his brother-in-law in Italy and it cost you $2,000 to airlift that piece to be installed by their specialty plumber, the only one in North America who is this contractor's buddy or whatever. You'll encounter these, and I'm not saying it's pervasive, but I've seen these things happen. Um, there's so many breakdowns when you have a chunk of money that I wouldn't say that the government throws it. There's a lot of hands-on situations, but if you ever have a corrupt individual in any portion of that process, they will exploit that. And then that comes at the cost of the individuals that was meant to benefit. But the public's perception is, we've already given them that money. What do you mean they need more money to make things run or whatever? And I'm not saying that this is like some sort of massively corrupting. I don't think it's like that. I think that this is an industry standard that we see across the board. You go and you build a house and you hire a builder who just likes to melt things a little and they can get away with it and it's industry standard. That's what they're going to do. Um, and I'm very fond of vendors that I've encountered who take personal accountability and responsibility for the fact that they're interacting <clears throat> probably like with a, a non-profit client and they go the extra mile and they don't charge the extra overtime. And, you will find those individuals because there are good people everywhere, just like there's those that are in that echelon of money dripping down to go to where it's supposed to be that'll take advantage of the system. So when people are like, we need to give more money to nonprofits for homelessness, I mean, by all means, give all the money to nonprofits because they're doing a better job at that than the government will. But there, the money sometimes is there, but it's being pre-allocated in a manner that isn't responsible fiscally moving forward. And society goes we gave it we did it we already where's these solutions why is there no more homelessness and in my arena you see things where um i mean burnout is pretty prevalent in nonprofits because you come in and you're all shiny and you and you want to make changes you want to see great things happen and then you encounter individuals and you're just like but they don't want to change that's not the case it's that the individual who's coming in who's wanting to change them isn't trauma-informed they're not understanding all these barriers that they cannot see that are very legitimate psychologically, sometimes physically, sometimes I mean, it's just substantial. And to not address them or pretend like they don't exist, you are not obtaining a solution. If I say there's a flight of stairs and at the top, you will be wealthy. And you turn to the person who has no arms and legs and go, there you go, I've solved your problem. That's a lot of what I see happen. Um, and the way that we try to solve poverty or solve homelessness or solve inequity and wealth is <laughs> what was there? What is your problem? And there's like so many steps in between and there's no navigation, there's no accessibility. So I just feel like that would be huge to, to see those steps in place. And I mean, I would benefit from it as a person who's not even in that kind of what's perceived to be that echelon of, of low poverty standard living. Um, but certainly that's how we see poverty end is by that education and investment and sort of, um, fuller understanding. And again, I don't remember what your question was. I just, well, I, I think that comes back to, um, the point that you made about me hating capitalism yeah. because I don't, I don't really view it in that manner. Like I don't think capitalism works, uh, in an equitable manner for right. people. 
but I don't necessarily hate it because I know how to benefit from yes. it. Yes. But what I dislike about it is that not everyone can benefit from it. I have the ability through privilege and through education and all sorts of different aspects to be able to make that system work for me and to do so in a way that I think is as, as, as ethical as possible right. within a system that I don't view as being ethical. Right, of course. Um, so it's not to say that I necessarily hate it, but it comes to that that what you mentioned about, okay, you put the goal at the top of stairs mm -hmm. and you told the person who can't climb the stairs that that solves their problem. It doesn't solve their problem, right? right? But then say we are faced with that scenario right now in real life. Like say, I have no arms and legs. You're the meanie who's just put the pot of gold at the top of the stairs and you and I are sitting at the bottom. What would a normal human being do in that moment? They would probably help the other individual up the stairs because they understand that for things to be equal, they need to get up the stairs. It would take a really disgusting human to go now and walk out. Um, and or you yes, create a societal change of getting rid of the stairs and putting the We could do a lot of different things, mm -hmm. but what a human will often do is just go, nope, not my problem, and turn and walk out. It's very rare. But the way that we are observing solutions are they're not our responsibility. Someone has taken responsibility is very hands off. And so those solutions, if they don't materialize in a very real way, Society is left with the illusion that they have been. And so if you took an individual and you put them there to sit and watch how this process goes and they see a contractor hiring out some ridiculousness for an exorbitant fee to make sure somebody's pockets are lined, they're going to go, whoa, you're not serious. Even if they know nothing, they'll know something's wrong. And they'd be like, I'm not cool with that. But we don't get to see that because in, I guarantee you in every single tiny pocket of everywhere, I'm sure you see it as a business practice. You may come across an occasion like that line doesn't look right. Like, oh, what are you doing there? It's kind of human nature at a certain point. You encounter people who are exploitive. And so it's, it's about all the other people who aren't. Those are the people you can influence and convince to assist with change. And I think like, you know, you can address this from multiple levels because none of us are the people that are walking out the door when someone's trying to get up the stairs, right? We're the people who are going to try to help them get up the stairs, but we're also the people who are going to try to get rid of the stairs completely so that it's not a barrier at all. And I see you as being someone who is helping people up the stairs in your business, right? We can push for the government to do a better job. We can push for societal changes that are going to make things more equitable, but you're going, we don't have that right now. So what can mm -hmm. I do? to help these people. And, and uh, in your case, it's the lower income people that you're wanting to have access to the same financial information and benefits that a wealthy individual might have. Well, I think it's interesting because you've talked about specific barriers that you'd like to remove as well. And I think that society, again, has a lot of judgment on when we say trauma-informed. Trauma-informed means that when you show up to a scenario or a client comes in that's in this social structure and says, you know, I only have this much money at the end of the month, but frankly, I can't make it for my week if I don't go buy a bottle of wine. You being trauma-informed goes, I understand that you need that. Let's figure out another solution where I don't have anything to do with your decision process, but I'm going to still try to find a solution because you as a human being are valuable. And that's kind of those steps of being trauma-informed. That's very simplified. But that's what, honestly, people that are living in poverty expect to see. They expect to be judged deemed not worthwhile, and then every single choice that they make, no matter what it is, they expect to be judged, and not expect they are. It is an active, persistent, and constant judgment that either you just decide you're fine with, or you begin to build some sort of your own bias against. 
And at that point, then you're starting a cycle again of now your children may not benefit from learning about wealth as a positive thing. But those are the bad people and it's us and them. And this is sort of all together. So to break down those little bits and pieces is actually humongous as an undertaking. And it starts with each individual that you can reach out to. Um, I mean, I'm just going to use an example where I have a friend who's a business owner and my teenage daughter, they wanted them to come in and paint and they wanted to pay a living wage. And so my teenage daughter was paid 23 or something dollars an hour to go in and paint as an unexperienced painter. Are you talking but about me? I, I was, but I didn't want to call you out. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was okay. So Nicola hired my daughter, and she had no previous painting experience, was very motivated to, like, prove herself and try her best. I knew it was going to be, like, a touch-and-go situation. This is not a child who has ever worked. I didn't um, provide as much guidance as I probably should have. You've learned things, too. Really well. um, oh, no, she asserts now that she, I should let her paint my house. I was like, I don't know. I haven't seen the outcome yet. We'll see how that goes. I might have I, higher I, standards. I Anyways. <laughs> but it's the premise of then she went to school, and they were talking about, oh, well, you can get, like, this work experience credit if you go get a job. And she's like, okay, well, I guess I could go get a job. And then found out how much you get paid and went, you're kidding me right now. Like, like I was able to save you know, this much of what Nicola paid me. But, like, I would be sitting all of that on my bus fare, and then I wouldn't, like, why would I bother working? This sounds like it doesn't make sense. Whereas there are valuable pieces of going and getting a job as a teenager, then not understanding that there's a long sort of process, that there's some payout at the end that you're investing in your skill set along with your finances or whatever a teenager is totally not going to care about. Um, that continues on if you're living in poverty. At no point is there a break where you go, oh, I see the payoff. That doesn't happen. So it becomes one of two things, apathy or a, a hustle scrap, which is kind of the way I view it. It's just like, take everything I can, even things I don't need because it's a survival tactic that's necessary and often learned to pass down generationally through no fault of anyone except their need to survive, which no one is at fault for needing to survive as a basic need. And if that's the only way that you can attain it because the system is not set up to allow people to flourish, that is your option to make sure that your children survive. So I think the idea of approaching everything with everyone is doing their best and everyone could do better if they knew better um, pertains highly to, like, say, clients that are very wealthy. And maybe you're like, ooh, why am I paying more money? Um, if they really understood what they are gaining from that societally, I, I think you'll find people are better people than we think they are frequently. Um, it's all about breaking it down from the sort of like non-individual. It's like each human being having attributes and investable moments and things like that being presented in that way as here's a human that I'm interested in. Um, and vice versa. Even if you're living in poverty, trying to find a rich person you're interested in is pretty difficult because you're not in that reality. Those people are interested in vapid things like shoes. Like you don't even window shop. You walk right past it. It's like, give me a break. Like, I have somewhere to be. It's a totally different take on life. And to kind of meld the two together and open more doors, um, there's a lot of bias on both sides that I think they'll end up addressing just by offering the accessibility and education. Just from my own personal experiences, having is grown up in an environment where we didn't have a ton of money and then going out on my own and, and just trying to pay all of my bills on minimum wage and not making a lot of money, I didn't, I didn't, really live comfortably until just a couple of years ago and 
what I noticed when I got to a place where I could live comfortably and I wasn't stressed about every single bill that came in is that there's so many stressors beyond just that that I hadn't really thought about. Like, I had stress around participating in sports because I didn't know if I could afford it. I had stress around uh, not necessarily always having the medications that I needed because I couldn't afford to buy those medications. Having the ability to take a vacation and just recover from all of the grinding and the working that I was doing because I was working, you know, minimum wage jobs, uh, 60 to 100 hours a week is the time I was putting, right? So those are the kinds of things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that you make a lot of sacrifices when you are lower income that people just don't think about. So I'm just wondering if you can provide some examples of, of the kinds of sacrifices that you're seeing low income people. Um, yeah, because it is, it's a reality break and it's one that's very frustrating for me to have observed, certainly to experience, um, and it has not been resolved. So if you are a person who needs to say, avail yourself, well, first off, being living in poverty is a full-time job. And I don't mean an eight hour a day job. I mean like a 16 hour a day job if you intend to survive. So I can back that up with like actual numbers or whatever, but that's truly my experience and observation. So what society also expects is on top of survival time, which has already been allocated so that you don't actively die, um, you're also supposed to improve your state and, you know, your contribution to society by improving yourself and all these other things. And then, often, individuals or corporations are interested in helping you, but they also want you to provide, and it's interesting, I was very grateful to hear that you're not asking people to provide information. No idea how time consuming and exhausting and prohibitive it is to say, I need you to bring in all this paperwork. That means a bus ride to go find a printer, to find a computer, then wait for time, and then now your kid needs to be picked up from school, so now you have to leave, you have to bus and go get them. And now something, the tiniest glitch happens, and now you're not doing it for another three days. The person that you were working with and wanted to help you is frustrated and presumes you don't want help because you can't make it. Like there's a thousand things like that that exist concurrently across the life of someone living in poverty who has the intention of getting out of it. People who want to stay in it can just spend the 16 hours a day surviving if they choose. A number of people, that's enough. That's, there's, there's systemic oppression, there's racism, there's bias and marginalization, and they're so beaten down that that 16 hours is all they have left in them. And so the people who are really trying to like, they have that tiny bit of life left and they're trying to make a go for it, um, are instantly battered by the, the scenarios that are in place. Sure, yeah, we'll give you money. Here's 200 pages you can fill out. It needs to be typed. You don't own a computer. Great. Well, here's a place you can go to get a computer to fill out paperwork. You have to bring in tax returns. You have to do this, that, and the other. Again, how are you going to fit that in? You need to go stand in a food bank because they're only going to give you two days worth of food and you need to get your kids to school. It becomes very impossible. So as far as like people who don't understand why people remain in poverty, it's not an allocation of time choice. It is... This is how much time you have to invest to be alive. And most of the people don't experience that. I don't experience that anymore. I don't have to go get up in the morning and go, I didn't get up in time. Now I'm running 10 minutes late. Now I don't get food today. I don't have to do that. But that's still a very lived experience for a vast number of people in our society. And that society's expectation on those people doesn't involve that. They don't understand that you are investing that much time and energy and exhaustion and constant non-improvement everybody is still just human sorry that they're poor but they're still just human 
they don't have that in them to give and to continue to try. So removing any obstacle is so enormous beyond what you can fathom is like incredible and very, very uh, conscious of you. Well, I mean, that reduction in stress amounts to a healthier lifestyle, both mentally and physically. Yeah, don't expect to be healthy and which, Not ever. Right, which, which then reduces the societal impact that low-income people have on our global or, or country's finances yes. because we're putting all this energy into essentially uh, retroactive maintenance as opposed to yeah. preventative maintenance. Honestly, right? people living in poverty in any nation is the most expensive thing they can have going. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do when I been doing this for a long time, volunteering with different organizations, but I started volunteering with Vancouver Pride when I was still in that low-income situation. And I wanted to put lots of effort into helping people and working with people. The only real benefit I got out of it for myself was that I would be able to travel places doing outreach for Pride in a way that was affordable because I couldn't afford to travel any other way. So it was amazing for me. Oh, you're going to send me to Victoria for the weekend? <laughs> Incredible. I could never afford to pay for that for myself, yeah. right? Um, and that was amazing. But my ability to volunteer with them was predicated on the fact that I had some money mm -hmm. because I had to get myself to meetings and I had to have transport to various places. And um, there were issues like, what am I going to eat when I'm out here? Are you providing food or are you not? Um, and I was very picky about any time I might have to spend some of my own money, I would feel so ashamed because I'd have to go to the organizers and say, is there some way that you can make this more accessible? Because I don't have, I want to volunteer, but I don't have the ability because I don't have the money for X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the fact that money is getting in the way of offering your services yeah. for free. Like, oh, yeah. You I know, mean, those are the kinds of things people yeah. don't realize about being low income. It has such a huge impact on every aspect of your life in a negative way, not in a positive way. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, um, I mean, we're talking about just different systems that I'm familiar with. I'm more familiar with the single mom scenario where say we catch them at a time where they've just had young children and they're still qualified for some welfare for some um, supplement for housing or whatever. Once their children hit a certain age, they don't qualify. They have to go work. Children in kindergarten start right before 9am. They get out of school at three, which means they have to pay for daycare. When I went off welfare, and got a job and started paying for my own daycare, my income was gone. That was equivalent to my income for me to work. So I suddenly was making $900 less a month than I was on welfare. So please don't, when, when we're talking accessibility, we're not considering, and, and single moms are easy. Single moms are visible. We know as a society they exist. They don't have a ton of marginalization attached to them like they used to 50, 60 years ago. But that's not the only group that experiences experiencing these gaps where to get out of poverty there's a lot of things that are they're not climbable walls you can't just leave your child at the side of the road in kindergarten until you get off work you could they'll take them away so you know it's things like that and i'm sure that there's people who experience that with like their esl or um again we're talking about trauma informed we have a number of refugees in this country who have fled war-torn scenarios that were excessively traumatic that impacts almost every decision that those people will make for a period of time because that's how human beings work. And to 
accept them or expect them to operate the same way we do in Canada, having not been bombed, it's going to be non-realistic. So I feel like the more industries, and this doesn't just happen for financial things. I mean, we're talking about that today, but really if we want society to be healthier, society is only as healthy as the people who are weakest and least healthy in it. And our jobs as individuals is to really rectify that situation. And so every industry, every business owner, um, Everyone has a role that they can play consciously to diminish the impact of our system, our colonial structures, our whatevers, not allowing for those people to easily access resources like everyone else. And the more that we do that, the more we technically, not even technically, we directly benefit from that. Even though it seems like we're the ones giving, we're directly benefiting from that because everything in a society is, uh, what's the word, symbiotic, essentially. And so the more that we get that word out, the more that we can benefit and show that what your idea and how that turns things around in certain ways. And, and then if you start making fat stacks of cash with this process, everybody else is going to do what you're doing. So like demonstrating successful enterprise as well is really integral and important. And it's funny because I keep hearing like this sort of subtle viewpoint where you feel like you might not do enough. It's technically needed that you do this because you're in that position to do it. Nobody else is. You are. So if we all look at it that way, you did it, King Kennedy, the amount that you did, you're doing it by setting up this business structure. Um, the more that people take full accountability and responsibility for the people around them and not go, it's somebody else's job. That's how we solve things. Um, and it's hard because that's not how we think. We think, oh, the government will this and that and the other, blah, blah, blah. We hire them, do a job while we don't, we, you know, vote them in. But then we feel like it's handled and it's not. It's all of our individual choices. And <laughs> That's why people like Mother Teresa are notable. She didn't go, oh, I'll just, you know, the government handles the poor kids and leprosy is bad. I'm not a doctor. She went and she solved things. And the whole world noticed because she solved things. And that's all that we can do. And it's a tiny little steps like that. And we're both doing really tiny steps in your world are humongous imprints on everyone else's. And if you never see it from that side, though, so. That's, that's my go. hope is that my, my, you know, tiny steps, albeit, you know, lots of work and planning is going into them, but hopefully my tiny steps in my little world, my small business, which hopefully is going to grow, that I can, whether, whether it affects change across the whole industry and others realize, oh, maybe we can flip these structures on their head, whether that happens or not, um, that I think that is making change. Yes. Yeah. And whether, so no, I can't. I can't change all the systems. I can't, yes, I work with leftover cash flow at the end of the month or at the end of a paycheck. So whether that's $25 a month or $1,000 per paycheck or whatever the case may be. So no, I can't work magic on if there are systems of poverty in place where it Sometimes is hope is magic. Somebody is not going to save that 25 bucks if they know factually 25 bucks doesn't save their life. They don't know anything else. That's true. That's true. So as much as I can't, I can't change systems of poverty. No, but I can make my services accessible and hopefully non-daunting to folks who otherwise might not access financial services. And what else was I going to say on that one? I think it'll um, instill confidence in people as well. Yeah, I mean, and the there are that they, yeah. There are free ways to access cash as well. And they also require a degree of privilege or a certain, certain 
scenarios in order to access them, but to every degree that I possibly can. If there is free money on the table, I am going to help people get it. And that includes, you can open an RESP, and if your child is a resident of British Columbia, between certain ages, you can get $1,200 for free just for opening the RESP. So there are situations in which we can actually help folks who can't even save $25 a month. We can open an RESP and just for having it open that money. Funny, because I'll tell you why I didn't do that. Because at the time, um, my husband was making $250,000 a year and we were like, oh, we'll just this, that, and the other instead. And then when that broke down, I was like, well, school is way more than $1,200 and I want to give them false hope. And I didn't do that. So then it came time to like pay for school and literally that would have like been so much easier. I think I did like maybe $3,000 for Jackson's first semester. So it's things like that that I didn't know because I just didn't get that far. I was a half step behind where it would have made sense for someone to say, oh God, no, you still want to do this. That was all it would have taken in my circumstance, which would be slightly different than everybody else's obviously. But it's those things that I think will be end up, end up being really, really valuable. And then... Because you're like, oh, it's only a sensible change. Say that you do that for someone. And then their kid grows up and takes advantage of that. And then, I don't know, becomes a doctor and solves cancer or something. Like, that's all that sometimes is needed because that is the level of barriers that exist that prevent some brilliant minds that would otherwise be capable of achieving great things in our society from being able to get there. $1,200. It could literally only be that. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we give it to someone. I'm suggesting that we make sure that they know they can do it. And that's all that's really necessary. Because then some people will. Then that exists their for, lives. Yeah, that exists for our ESPs. That exists for our DSPs, Registered Disability Savings Plans, for youth, for adults who qualify for the disability tax credit. And certainly that's another barrier, getting folks in touch with the person who can tell them what is the disability tax credit and how to qualify for it. Yeah. So let's get that information out there. And if you do, you can get money from the government just for having the plan open. Mm. So there are ways of getting, I call it free money. It's not free because folks, it's benefits that they are benefits eligible for. Entitled. That's absolutely and correct. Yeah, entitled to is actually the correct statement because it's funny because I've had a lot of people be like, oh, well, I didn't want to blah, blah, blah. I was in a unique position where we had been in the highest tax bracket for a period of time. Before, I went on welfare after I had left my husband. So, I didn't feel so bad. You mm -hmm. <laughs> then I I was like, you know what, give me my money back. So, it was a lot different. But, like, I mean, if somebody looks at that time frame and goes, this is the time that I need to educate myself on how I can be that better for myself and my children when this period of time is over. So, your kid's going to go to school at five. If you've spent five years going to university for free, you're going to be in a really good position to provide a better lifestyle. But we aren't presented with that as an option or an optional, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the most ideal option. It's like, hey, this will come to an end and then you're going to be right where you are, but it'll be harder. No one says that. So you see so many women just struggling from that point forward. They now have to work two or three jobs, pay for daycare. And then you're looking at children growing up in poverty who aren't having family structures that their parents want to give them because they're struggling to survive. So... There's all these little pieces. There's the financial planning aspect. There's a living wage aspect. There's all the different things that could be done to educate the public about what we could all do better. But yeah, people doing their part is I think what's integral and I just love what you're doing. So both of you, both of that. Well, thank you. And um, I think it would be a good time to 
start having a conversation sure. about do we want to write right things down or whatever? I feel like we've gone so far over because I like to talk. I'm gonna before, lean on before we launch into that, if I yeah. could just say one thing. I feel that it would be remiss to go through an entire podcast episode, and maybe we would have touched on it, but talking about wealth and equity or any social justice issue without specifically mentioning a lot of intersections of folks' identities that do come into play, that... For somebody who is um, a visible minority, that is Black, Indigenous, that is a person of color, that is has a visible disability, that, um, you know, I, I'm sitting here in a cisgender body, I'm able-bodied, I have white skin, and I'm sitting here without lived experience of poverty and with a great deal of privilege. And I'm sort of speaking to this topic of wealth and equity. And I, I feel remiss not mentioning and just bringing awareness to the fact that no, and yes, there's this idea that if you try harder, if you budget harder, if you are smarter, if you are fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks, fill in the blanks, if you do this, da, 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 da. You will solve this problem. You will get out of poverty. You will. And you've spoken so much to that already. But there are so there are barriers that somebody like me cannot even, I can only read about or listen about or hear others' lived experiences about. And I just want to make that known and valid for people who may be watching or listening to this going, why is this not even being spoken about? that those would be additional barriers. I, I just wanted to, to bring it up. That's all that, and especially specifically with disability in particular, we, we place such a, we place earned income on such a pedestal in our society, I think, whether it's earning a minimum wage or a living wage or a thriving wage or a surviving wage, and hopefully it is more of a thriving wage, but we do place such a premium on the ability to earn an income and the the act of earning an income that those who aren't earning an income, those who are having an income through a form of social assistance or through a disability income or PWD persons with disability or other form other than earning an income, there is an element of shame to it or, or lack of being entitled to it or and disability is just one of the, the reasons why somebody might not be earning an income or might be under earning an income. But it's just, it's, I mean, all these issues are so tied together, really. But whether it's wealth inequity or classism or racism or any of the pages in the social justice coloring book, really, I think it's not a full conversation without bringing in those aspects that are, are just additional intersections of creating marginalization. Absolutely. That's actually a really important piece of every episode that we're doing is recognizing that it is sort of this broad topic that probably need to delve into the more minute details of, but also that all of the topics intersect with each other in different ways. So we are going to talk about racism and xenophobia and things like that in future episodes, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply also to this episode. And we're a group of white people, which gives us, a, I guess, a control in some ways, right? Because we're all recognizing that we're coming from that same aspect of privilege. But it does mean that we're missing the perspective of those people of color, the people with disabilities, all those kinds of factors that, that we're missing out on. And I was planning on asking you about that kind of right near the end, uh, because we knew that going into this, that was something that was really important to 
you to, to talk about, but I appreciate you bringing it up naturally. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a person who, I guess, I'm, I'm accustomed to having a seat at the table. I'm accustomed to being heard, or if I haven't yet been heard, to be feeling able to speak up and raise my voice if necessary. And so that's, that is coming from a position of privilege. And I, so I'm flattered to be on the podcast, but it, again, it comes back. I feel so ill-equipped and that there are so many voices that need to be brought to the table that glad to be at the table, glad to be speaking on it. But I just, I want, I want so many other voices on the table too. And I do as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're doing this podcast every two weeks. My goal is to bring in as many different voices as possible. Uh, diversity, not just of uh, skin color, which obviously I want, but also disability and, and perspectives. Like this podcast, we might all be of the same persuasion when it comes to skin color, but when it comes to uh, our lived experiences, they're very different. And so that was a focus of this one, but um, we definitely have to look at all of the different intersections of every episode that we're, we're putting out. Um, I want to maybe hand over some control of the podcast to you for this. Because I don't know how you would typically put together a case study, what information you want. So if you're sure. able to sort of take that on and maybe ask the question that you want to ask of Heidi. Sure. Okay, so Heidi, I think it's a great idea, first of all, that you brought up this idea of, you know, what, what if I were to bring some of my personal experiences and how would, how would we have a conversation about that? So I'll fly by the seat of my pants here. Um, so how I would typically start, uh, so if somebody is referred to me, they give me a call, they find my information, whatever it is, we would start with 20 minute phone or video call and we would go over, here's the type of work that I do, here's the process that I go through with clients, here's how I'm paid, would you like to proceed? So I figured if we're going to do a bit of a case study, um, I would start by, you know, asking you, what is it that's bringing you to chat about your finances, and then I'll let you know the type of work that I do and see if we might work together. Okay, so a reason that I would think it would be valuable for me is from my lack of knowledge about it, I think is holding me back from being able to accurately plan for positive outcomes for myself and my children, primarily with housing. Um, because I, you know, I've done the projections on that, like continue with what we're doing, it would still require us to win the lottery. So it's, you know, let's explore if there's another option to do that in a different way. And if we can't do it, then how do we continuously sustain our income to continue to rent? And I feel like that's also pertinent to look at financial. Okay. So at that point, I would transition to here's, here are the areas in which I work. Is there room to work together? So the, the four areas that I work on with clients are liquidity. It's that fancy word that Liquidity means having money available for emergencies and opportunities. Liquidity can mean looking at what's coming in each month, what's going out each month. So the budget, the dreaded word, the budget. Um, so inflow and outflow, debt if applicable, and money that's on hand if applicable. So liquidity, money available for emergencies and opportunities. The second area I work on is retirement. So for some people, that means slowing down or stopping work at some point. Um, you know, is that in the plans? 
Thirdly and fourthly, financial security in the event that you're sick or hurt, something that would interrupt your income for a period of time. And lastly, financial security in the event of death. So if you were to pass away prematurely, is somebody depending on your income that would get to continue? So I've thrown a bunch of sort of fancy words your way. Would it be retirement, financial security, if you're sick or hurt, financial security in the event of death? For some clients, we focus more on one or two of those areas. For others, it might be all four. So it, it's whatever areas are highest priority for any one client. The process that we go through is first we would look at where are you now with regards to liquidity, retirement, those four areas. Are we starting from a place of debt and limited cash flow? Are we starting from a blank canvas of no savings yet? Are we starting from a place? What's the current scenario? Um, more importantly, where do you want to be? So in an ideal world, what would it look like for you six months from now, a year from now, three years from now? Then would be my step of taking that information. Where are you now? Where would you like to be? Where are there any gaps in your current and ideal scenario? And then we would sit down for a recommendation meeting thereafter. In terms of how I'm paid, there's no cost out of pocket to you. I'm compensated by commission from whatever carrier we may place business with. So if ultimately you do place investments, for example, or insurance, I would be compensated by commission from those companies. Um, now, you mentioned coming at this from a place of, so I'm going to assume yeah. that you've already told me in this scenario that yeah. I'm coming from a place of low income. So you've mentioned you're coming from a place of low income and limited resources. So with the conversation that we've just had, the areas that I work on with clients, does any of that sound like it would address any of the concerns you're having? Well, I we recently experienced a life event wherein my son, who was contributing a good portion to our household expenses, had to leave his job um, and fall out from that. I ended up borrowing quite a bit. Previously, had zero debt, and I think I'm now about ten thousand dollars in debt, and that's on like the high end. It may be less. Um, that's probably pretty close, actually. Um, and so paying that off, um, I've only, it was at 12, and now it's getting closer to 10, um, has been really slow, but he's only just starting to work again tomorrow. So let's hope that this goes well, because once that alleviation of paying for everything is gone, I'm hoping that it will improve slightly, because then I would be attributing the current amount of $800 a month, which is what he needs to the household. That's what I'm covering, and I was going to contribute that back it's just I didn't expect it to last a year that he wasn't working. So it was a much longer span of time to quite a bit out. The unfortunate part of that is that my options were to borrow that money from like places at 30 or 40 percent interest. Um, and so it'll be a half minute before I put those Hashtag predatory lending on You the know why? <laughs> Although we are not homeless because of them, so I can't even knock it. Like I'd already, already drained friends dry. And by the time I borrowed that, um, I was really cautious and didn't take as much as they offered, thinking that somehow was smarter. I don't think it actually mattered, but whatever. Um, I'll be working that to get that handled. Retirement, I probably should look at. I'm not that kind of person. I'll probably just drop dead one day and that'll be the end. Um, but I mean, my work offers some sort of retirement. I've not even read it. I don't even care. Like, so I'm irresponsible, obviously, um, because I don't really ever intend to be 
sure no one ever goes, well, no, maybe people do like retirement. For me, I don't intend to go, okay, that's the day, now I relax. Um, I mean, I'm going back to school to become a lawyer at 43. I clearly don't intend to ever relax. So I'm not so much concerned about that, but I have had health issues, and I do tend to be concerned more about the impact that might have on, it, on my income. Granted, once I'm making a higher income, it's plausible it'd be okay. And I do have a good number of sick days now, far more than is in normal in any industry. Um, so I'm very lucky that way because I don't lose out on pay. Um, that that could change. Like if I'm going back to law school full time, I'm not going to be employed full time with this company. So that may be different. And that's not something that I've really looked at planning for. And clearly didn't do the math on great when I was considering my son being ill and leaving work. Um, so that might be something to actually look at the being sick one, the retirement analogy. I don't know. I'm sure it makes sense as an adult to do that. It just doesn't seem a priority for me at this time. Um, so I would concentrate on probably the sick or dying bed and the, I don't know, what was the other one? The death bed um, is probably the two areas that I could kind of see. I can also see immediate action that makes sense to me um, being more readily available in those two areas. So retirement is kind of at the bottom of the priority yeah, list totally for you. Like as a non-entity, we could never yeah. address it. I'd be thrilled. Like I yeah. just don't see it. Oh my gosh. I, I work with folks who, who run the gamut from, I will work as long as I'm able. No, I mean like I'll throw myself work. down some stairs when I'm working. <laughs> like there's no <laughs> reason there's to there's there's that point. <laughs> no, it's just, it's not in my nature to be like, yeah. oh, I'm going to beg out. And that's part of transitioning to something that doesn't require physical sort of things is that you can be a lawyer and be a hundred. Like, Ruth did it, or you know, the justice fast deal. So, um, RBG, <laughs> shut up. Um, so my thoughts with that is I don't anticipate retiring. Um, it could very well be that I have a severe illness that would impact me being able to continue to work, but I'm not going to be relaxing on the beach anywhere ever. It's just not going to happen. That's not my idea of fun. Yeah. So, um, planning for it seems weird to yeah. me. So. At this stage in the at this juncture in the, yes. the conversation, I would probably say, okay, so let's schedule a planning meeting, or I'd, I'd suss out your willingness and your comfort level with with doing any of this. You know, how accessible does it feel? Do you feel that going down this avenue is a lost cause? Do you feel that um, doing this you will be judged? Where where we would go with it is, I would say, okay, so for a planning meeting. What I would ask you to do is fill in, have a little template of money that comes in each month yeah. on an average basis. For some people, it might be the exact same every month. Yes. It's, so, okay, so it's predictable. That's great. Yeah. So money that's coming in each month, that might be from you. It might be from yes. your son. It might be from various sources. Okay. So what comes in in an average month? Then I can answer all these if you there want to do that face. Okay, so I get $5,100 a month, and that's inclusive of all various weirdnesses. Amazing. Okay. okay. And is that net or gross? So is that, that what hits your bank account each month? I think it is. I okay. have to do these numbers for whatever those loans were. And that's okay. Um, you don't have to do this. In, in this meeting, I would never expect you to have those figures, but you, you're sort of jumping ahead, which is me, I can do the math. It'll just take a moment. So I get $2,400 in income. Twenty-four yeah. in income after taxes. Yep. So that's net. Yes. Okay. And then What is the other thing I get? I get now $1,000 from CPP. I get 600 in rent 
from my daughter-in-law. Sorry, 600? Yes. Okay. You get 800 in rent from my son, now that he's going back to work. And I get $900 as a bursary to my two other children. How old are your children? Which ones? So what's <laughs> youngest and They all live there. So the oldest, I think, is 24, and the oldest is around, so I might be wrong. Um, 24, I like a few days. Oh, that's right. Happy birthday. So 24, daughter-in-law, 25. Um, daughter-in-law lives with you? Yes. Okay. Second oldest has recently um, kind of sort of stayed in friends more, so isn't there as much, is, oh, I want to say 21, but they may be 22. I'm really bad at this mommy thing, obviously. Anyway, uh, I talked down to a few of them. Once they were adults, I was like, this is not my problem anymore. Remember, you're older than me. I don't have any time for ages. <laughs> Anyways, so then I know my other son is 21. That's the one that's getting back to work. Um, I have a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and a 1-year-old granddaughter all living in the So 6-year-old is your youngest, yes. and then there's a 1-year-old grandchild. Yes. Okay. So if I can count. One, two, three, and six four, children, five, and one six. grandchild, and one daughter-in-law. Awesome. Okay, so we're at like eight or nine people. I don't know. The okay. <laughs> so your youngest is six, and who is the primary caregiver for the one-year-old? Is it yourself? Oh God, no, no. They okay. live there, and they're just okay. So stay in the basement. That sounds so troll-like. <laughs> the first I, level have, of the house. We have changed. We renovated the. Uh, rec room into a studio apartment and that's what they <laughs> live. It's not true. It's just a room. Call that a okay, you know what? Yeah, so first of all, there's this jumping way ahead. But the youngest, we're going to get $1,200 in an RESP for that. I feel like that her mother would appreciate that a great deal to know these things. She's very like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's that's neither here nor there, but we're going to open an RESP and we're okay. going to get $1,200 okay. for free. Okay. 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 Important things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if we were to add these up, so you think it's 51 I don't even know if I'm done yet, but where did okay. we get to? Let's because then I'll know to. better what I'm missing. Calculator. 2400 net from employment plus 1000 And this is the survivor's benefit yeah. for CPP. Including my children, the two younger, the two middle children that still get it. So 5,700, does that sound about right? I knew there was a five, and I knew there was other numbers. This is pretty good. This is honestly, good. yeah, that's as close as yeah, I mentioned. So I just sort of live and hope things work. Yeah. <laughs> and this is never it's something I expected. Opposite of what you want. I would never be like, tell me how much. This is no. it's homework. I no, it's fine. Yeah, no. Do you know approximately how much you spend in an average month? That freaking amount and a little more. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's, <laughs> and that's the thing. People are like, wait, do you want the number that I, no, 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 do you no. want a number that you should want or no? Like Wildly out of control because it fluctuates heavily on borrowing, not from yes. lenders, from my friends. If I need Sometimes you do. You need a pool. Hot. Your kids are annoying. I'll go, can I borrow $600? And then that goes into the bank account. That's spent. And I would count that as expenditures because I'm still paying that back. So I would say that we hover around that amount. Um, but it's enough that it's been tight now making these $150 payments twice a month for the loans that I've taken out. So we really do hover right around what's coming in. So you're, you're the repayment is $150 semi-monthly, meaning twice Bi weekly. Yeah. What, what I tell clients with the, the budget homework, so when they're working on what comes in each month, what goes out each month, 
I don't typically actively get involved in that sheet. So I won't sit down with somebody and go, okay, what are you spending on groceries versus what are you spending on cable versus what are you, unless somebody yeah. wants me to. There are so some unnecessary somebody... purchases, but they're pretty nominal. And I'm not saying that as a person who's not noticing. I know exactly what we spend on actual food. But I also, it was very important to me that like my six-year-old gets hot lunch at school because we went through years when my kids couldn't do that and they felt bad and I didn't want that to be her experience. So I do spend things on things that we don't have to because for me at the time, I made those choices. It was more important to ensure that the quality of life was there. That being said, time has passed and I'm looking at things in a little bit of a new life light. We are in a position where I don't feel like she's so hard done by. I'm laughing hysterically because she's so spoiled. So I could make different decisions. Um, there is leeway. Um, there just isn't currently because of pre-allocated things that I could adjust in a few months' time. Yeah, and what, what I'm not there to do as a financial advisor is go, mm, your coffee budget is a little over. Like, that's yeah. not... No, I'm just trying to like make sure that we are taking into account that there could be... Mm -hmm. Something that we could put into something that I just maybe not said, maybe that's what the homework is good for, is sitting down and looking at. Yeah. If I could just interject yes. for a moment here because you brought up coffee. And yes. so I wanted to just have a conversation around those kinds of expenses that people say stop buying coffee because if you do, you'll be able to buy a car or a house or something like that. Or, or Why maybe are you a spending money on or... something that is considered frivolous? It's not a need or. Right. And I am not the financial planner that will, if that. If that is part of what keeps you feeling human each month, oh yeah, I think that's important. But let's talk about that. So let's talk about an expense that you might feel guilty about, or feel like if I go to a financial planner, I should want to stop this. Or yeah, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So we had talked oh, earlier sure. about like cigarettes, for instance. Yes. And, and oh, I don't feel bad about that one though. Like right. you'd have to look at like I. But it's not necessarily what you feel bad about. It's just, I'm oh, trying I to think about like, to, like get vulnerable well, no, no, I, you <laughs> feel free to get into that as well. Um, but I'm also just curious about addressing that component of people saying, if you just stop buying this frivolous expense and some people would say, well, cigarettes are a frivolous expense. If you stop doing it, hmm. you have an extra $4,300 a year. You could buy a car for that, for it's like a used car sure, or something so you like that, right? A car that you can't put gas in, or right, right. parking, or insure. But this yeah. is the argument okay, that your some people will, yeah. will use, I know, right? yes, so, absolutely. It's a very commonly used one, absolutely. Yeah, so can you speak to like why that argument doesn't hold water, for instance, and sort of Well, I can give two perspectives of it. One is anyone worth their salt who's actually wealthy would not say that. Idiotic. It's idiotic. They do not go out and they don't buy a coffee and go, oh, gee, I could have put another car in the end. They don't care because it's not relevant, nor is it a true reflection of life. If you have that money in your bank and something goes wrong and you need it for something, you're going to get that, not the car. So it doesn't actually matter. However, it's not there. You may opt to find a different solution. And that's a lot about how poverty money is kind of managed. It's very emergency based. If I am in an emergency situation and I'm going to go borrow that money, that's not money that I would have been able to avail myself of to go and invest. I'm not going to go borrow $2,000 from you and be like, well, I just felt like making some investments today. You're going to be like, that's nice. Be gone. And then if I'm like, look, I'm going to be evicted. If I can't pay my bill, can I borrow $2,000 from you? That is a very different communication. So my point with that is, is that even if I didn't have a coffee every single day 
and then somehow ended up precarious for two months, that $4,300 is gone. So I can't borrow against that. I can't walk up to a friend and go, I want a new car. Can you help me out? But I can leverage a life event that's an emergency. So there's factors there that do come into. It sounds very contrived, and it's not. This is me unpacking quite a bit over years, kind of looking at this and saying, how are we surviving? This doesn't make any sense. Um, there are elements there where you have an ability to accomplish things with an amount that's, that you could not accomplish a different thing with. So if I want a coffee, I can go take some recyclables back. Sure, someone could make the argument that I could take recyclables back every single day until I get $4,300. Um, that's like a long-term investment that is taking a lot from life and from time. And so it becomes unrealistic in a way. The other thing I was going to mention is like when people are like, um, oh, don't have a coffee and instead save up to get a car. Um, every single life expense that we have that's invested in an asset has up and further expense. And so it's not necessarily the correct action for everyone. Um, sure, putting $4,300 away, no one would argue is a bad idea. Like everyone would be like, yeah, that's obviously better than spending money on something that would just go away. But at what point do you draw the line on spending money that would just go away? Like I've said myself, I get my clothes from friends. There are some people that that would like literally not work for. They don't have friends that have the same size or for whatever reason it doesn't work. Um, and they're going to go out and they're going to be spending $4,300 a year on clothes just to be able to go to work or to whatever they need to do as a responsible action. Um, and so for me, when I go, I'm getting my clothing for free because I've made these connections and fostered that relationship and I have, you know, works on making sure that that can happen. Um, then should I still kind of go, well, then now I still can't have a coffee because I should keep that. I don't think that's very human. Yes, we could. I certainly know people who were extremely good with their money. We like to say good with your money. It's allocating it elsewhere. They allocated their money to a savings or something else. But it's also a lifestyle choice. It isn't only one coffee. It's this is who I want to be. I want to be the person that puts this money here. And I want to see that money there. And that's not very common for a person who then goes, oh, my God, we need milk. Well, let's just go without it another week, children. We'll just not eat. No, you're going to go take that coffee money and you're going to use it. So there's not a lot of, it's just not realistic to go, oh, it's there and it's safe there. Um, it's like different I, when you're doing it for someone else, too. Like, I did the whole sacrificing. Oh, yeah, money yeah, thing. you can have ramen all day well, long if it's only you. I ate a ton of ramen. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I, if I had a kid, I wouldn't say eat a lot of ramen because it wasn't a healthy lifestyle. I was yeah. purposefully putting myself in a position where yes. I was being unhealthy because it was allowing me to save money. And that comes mm -hmm. down to quality of life. Yes. And a lot of the things I hear about coffee in particular is I can't afford a vacation. Coffee is what gets me through the day. Oh God. Well, it was worse for me in my particular circumstance. When I went to children's hospital, I had had my six year old and they said, well, we need to test your blood again. It's been three times. I went, we don't understand because you should be morbidly obese and unable to move. Your thyroid does not work. And I was like, that seems weird. I, I mean, I'm chubby, but whatever. And they were so convinced that their test was wrong, they had done it three times. And they were like, what are you doing? Like, how are you doing this? I was like, I have four coffees, by caffeine. five <laughs> shots of espresso. So that's 20 shots of espresso a day. And the doctor was like, well, that would do it. So what I didn't realize was that I developed that habit out of necessity. Anyone used to drink four coffees a day. I would have one and be like, oh, that's a lovely little girl. I had a coffee. You know, and I was very white and very middle class at the time. And then as time progressed and the food became scarce, I still had access to Starbucks because 
I had fostered relationships there. So as they noticed I was coming in less, they'd be like, yeah, I can't really afford it. Some of them are knowing what's going on. I'm being slipped free coffees. Um, and then I was being slipped free food. So if I went for a coffee, I might get food. So it became a part of a process of survival for me. Um, kind of like I had mentioned earlier about cigarettes and the kind of exchange rate that exists for that within an excessively impoverished arena, you get benefit from having them to share or to buy a place in a line or to make a connection, which your safety then sometimes can be hinged on. So it's like, um, or I'm trying to, I felt like I'm losing a lot of English today. I'm just so tired. Anyways, um, I feel like it's taking those things into account and how they impact your life. Those things might be more valuable in comparison to a car or in comparison to whatever else they would like you to buy your $4,300. And, um, you know, so when you're living in poverty, if it's there, it's going to be used. You're not in poverty easy and there's not emergency. You stay in poverty because it's not easy and there's emergency. And the more impoverished you are, the more emergencies there are. Every little thing that goes wrong that cannot be fixed in a sane and normal way. I cannot tell you how much more expensive it is to live in poverty than it is to not. Um, and so it's not a realistic thing. Sorry, that was a very long tangent. Is, is a perfect example. Of oh that. yeah. Is if you were not living in poverty, you wouldn't be seeking a high interest loan, and you would. I wouldn't have been that. in a state where we would not have found other housing. We cannot be housed elsewhere. It's not a possibility to have nine people living in a three-bedroom house. Good luck. So it really comes down to it's if your option is to pay 40%, which I mean, I'm not going to lie, it took me six months to agree to do it because I was like, this is a terrible idea. So stupid. Why would they even think someone would accept, accept this? And then it came down to we are not going to be able to. We have capped out and rolled over so many paychecks to try to cover this. We can't anymore. And then it was like, okay, well, then this is the solution. And the solutions don't solve anything, but they'll prolong the death. And that's what a lot of poverty is. So when you're looking at solutions, you need to recognize that if it's not a solution, it's just prolonging. And so it's not worth investing in. Not having a coffee is only prolonging. If you tell me that I don't have a coffee for a year and I'm going to be in a house that I pay for and work for, but I'll be in a house at that point, I will stop drinking coffee tomorrow. I don't care if I die. Well, but it's not that kind of solution. It's a maybe, right? So, And what I would say, too, is that your the, the investment that is really not working for you is the high interest loan, not the coffee, right? True. So, yeah, so but that, wrong that comes back yeah. to wealthy people can get a home equity line of credit or even just a standard line of credit <laughs> where they're going to be paying way less interest than that. True. But you don't have access to that as well, a loan. There's not reality on that either, though. A lot of times it's pretty unusual for someone who has lived in the level of, well, frankly, in Canada, I was in a pretty unique position where I was poorer for a period of 10 years than people who had any access to healthcare were allowed to work or had a SIN number or were able to receive any kind of government funding or housing. I was not eligible for any of it. If I accepted it, our case would have been thrown out as precedent in the Supreme Court. So we signed up for 10 years of pretty bizarre levels of poverty. Um, we did really well compared to what we should have because of the people that I knew and their generosity. But um, so I've really seen things that most people in our society that live in a low income parameter um, experience things that are far worse. It is extremely unlikely that someone's going to have malnutrition that's here in North America. Um, so it's one of those things where I feel like that viewpoint allowed me to kind of go, what are the things that 
when I hear from, no, if I want to, I can go out and I can present as though I'm a middle class person and have a conversation with a professional and they're not going to assume that was ever part of my life. Um, and in those moments, I can see where there is a disconnect in reality and understanding. And there are those people that will say, oh, they just stopped having their avocado toast. Well, first of all, like, you know, if you're eating an avocado toast, then hopefully you don't need anything else because it doesn't have like a good amount of nutrition in it because why else would someone eat avocado toast? But that's not really real for someone living in poverty. You're not going to go, oh, I need to go get my avocado today. That's a weird supposition that really made up in people's heads. If someone's truly living in poverty, they've gone to a food bank, they are getting a single bag of food that has like two cans of tuna, maybe some stale bread, and probably two or three other, other items that make no sense together. Nothing. And that's it, because the expectation is that you leave there, you're still getting government benefits of some kind, or you're low working income, and you're still gonna have money somewhere. I don't know how disabled people do it in this country. It's absolutely disgusting. And I know that you have information about that that you've brought to light before for your social justice stuff. Um, I've helped disabled women submit their paperwork three or four times with the doctor's information completely done and been denied over and over and over and over again. And we are expecting people who are disabled to walk through this. And then are we supposed to get mad about their avocado toast? If all they're doing is avocado toast and they're not shooting heroin at that point, then I'm proud of that. It's so substantial, the pressures and the like constant battering that it is to try to extricate yourself from these positions, that not a single human alive has the right to even begin to judge that. They do not care how much money, how much money you have. You don't, you don't probably have what it takes to be in their position. Um, I mean, help somebody disagrees with me, I would challenge that and I would film that and I would instantly be a millionaire because that's incredible. So it's just one of those things where that break in reality creates problems. And so the statements are foolish and wrong to say, oh, you saved that money. It'll go somewhere else. I stopped buying myself clothes and that money went somewhere else before I ever went to cigarettes. Um, I mean, I stopped eating food for various reasons and because I was being given cigarettes, that made it not noticeable. I was living in constant physical pain from, you know, organs shutting down. So, yes, I could stop smoking, and I will. I'm a grown human being with, you know, dignity and self-autonomy, and I'll choose to do that when I want to. But it isn't what's preventing me from being in the next class level. It isn't the cure for us to have affordable housing or to have options to move upwards. Other choices may be. That is also equivalent to that choice. Is it a luxury? Yes. So the person judging me likely has access to a lot more luxuries, and they probably wouldn't give up even one to save an entire village of children. I don't feel that's a very valid judgment. Um, so when people say that, I just assume that there's a lack of shared reality, and they just don't understand. Um, and I, I don't usually we've never experienced what it's like to a lot of people. Not have money. I mean, but then again, you know, we come back to in North America, can we? Like, I've experienced significant permanent physical things from malnutrition in North America, and we did not experience poverty the way it is in the rest of the world. That would be standard. I would have lost multiple children because of that. I would have probably died multiple times because when I got that bad, I could go to the hospital. They charged me $1,000 to show up, but I could go. There was a hospital. There is transit. Um, there is options that do exist here that don't elsewhere. So our version of excessive poverty still is wealthy everywhere else. Like not everywhere else, but mostly everywhere else. 
So it, it's interesting to have those perspectives because I know that as a person who lived through poverty, a number of people are, have that awareness, like others have it worse is a very common phrase. I don't hear that from the mouths of people who haven't experienced poverty. There's not an awareness. So I can't expect them to have a shared understanding of the reality of people who are going through poverty. They're just going to try to lens it in their eyes. Well, if I didn't have an extra avocado toast while I was getting my fourth spa treatment that day, I could probably afford a car. That's their reality. It's very different. And it's not their fault that they haven't experienced hardship to the magnitude necessary to develop that information. But I don't have to listen to them either because they don't know what they're talking about. So it's all right. Anyways. Anyways, um, that's, that was Sorry, I wanted yeah, to interject with it. all of me out because all I do is go on. No, no, I thought it was a really good conversation, but just trying to kind of bring it back yeah. around to what was happening prior to that, which was this sure. sort of case study talking about the way that you would approach a client. Um, would you like to kind of jump back in there? Sure. So where we got to was that you've got about $5,700 coming in each month and you've got $5,700 going out each month and emergencies that arise, yes. which there's no, there's no savings for. So we know that $300 per month is going to repay debt, which yes. will be repaid in about two to three Well, 36 years. months is one, yeah, one payment and the other one, but it must be. I feel like it's 24 or 18. Oh, it's 18 months. So one is 18 months and one is 36. And they were just started, so that or no, one was in January and then one was just started. Okay. So so in in two to three years, although my provided they don't get refinanced. To pay them back when my son is back to paying that expense because I've been covering it to take six hundred of the eight hundred to roll into those because 200 is a necessity. I can't wiggle past that. But the other 600 is usually what I would have been allocating to those like investing quality of life thing, which now it's timed out properly. All of my children have beds to sleep in. They all have towels, they all have clothes, they all have shoes. I don't have to continuously put money into those things because I've ensured that what I purchased will remain. Um, so I feel really comfortable that we have that wiggle room and it's just sort of timed out last month that my six-year-old got all those things and now everybody's good. So I have the option to start wiggling in on, we have, we could do other things with this money. So I want to pay all those offers because it's ridiculous. I don't think it's going to save me any money to pay them all faster. It's just more to not have the continuous payments that, you know, something could happen and then it'd be stressful again. So anyways, long as that cover that. So yeah, I mean, what, what I would honestly can like, concede and share with you in this scenario is that it is outside of the scope of a lot of the work that I do and that doesn't that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to work on it with you but what I don't want to pretend is that I'm an expert in it and I oh I know the answers for you to have this money I don't right. but to have the conversation where it's safe it's okay to talk about this there's no judgment as to where that 5700 is being made up from mm -hmm. so what I don't typically do is work through the budget with people unless right. they specifically ask me to if they go okay I've figured out how much I spend on utilities and how much I spend on the cell phone bill and how much I spend and I'd really love for you to go through it with me and see if there's wiggle room happy right. to do that but I don't typically do it as a default specifically right. because it's not my place to say you should spend less money at great. So you should spend because, less money at, yeah if if a you're person spending should be inspired more, by themselves to do 
so that I think working with you would possibly do. Yeah. So either someone looks at their own sheet and goes, yeah, I I know where I'm spending a little excess and I know where I can trim off some fat, so to say. Or they go, I, there's nothing I can really trim here. Okay. So the, the questions are then, so if you are spending what comes in each month, what are the realistic options? Is having additional income a realistic option? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe it's no. And there's various ways. So is there any social assistance available that's not being utilized yet? Are there um, disability tax credits available but not being used yet? So is anyone in your household disabled in any manner? No one willing to claim it. Okay. So that, I mean, obviously it's relevant because we wouldn't be eligible if they don't want to claim it. Okay. Um, And then extra income theoretically is possible, but haven't really looked at it as a solution. I looked at reschooling as a solution um, because if I don't leave school with debt, that allows my income to be higher. Like there is still wiggle room, like I said, like I could, I was for a long period of time putting between 25 and $100 a month away into a TFSA. And then my son got COVID, he was one of the first people to get in and be tested at Bridge and had to stop working for a period of time. Then. And I pulled everything out to pay rent then, at which point um, then he went back to work and everything was fine for like another year or so until he got sick again last September. So I really feel like those little emergency things, both times, completely drained me out. Um, because if it comes down to being evicted or pulling it out, I'm going to pull it out. So I think developing a better fail safe than just sticking it in a TFSA, I'm going to just pull out in an emergency. I felt like I would be motivated to do, and I don't know if there's a better way to take that amount, because it would likely be available again starting in two weeks, um, to take that amount and do something different. Like, if it's not being spent or put into a TFSA, that doesn't mean it's extra income, but it does mean it's available there. And, you know, there's always the possibility, like, we're pretty creative. I usually focus on resources acquisition because I feel like it's saving us a lot of money in the long term. Um, so instead of spending $4,000 on a pool, I had a friend who was upgrading. We gave them $600, but we removed it. And then they were able to buy their $12,000 pool. And we got a really lovely pool for $600 that we would have had to spend four on. But I'm also not putting my child in daycare for the summer. She's staying home and swimming. And so I'm saving $1,100 for three months. And so I do all this weird math. And then I pick the one that is most fiscally workable for the long term. So all of those things that I've just mentioned are now paying off. There's no more purchases in play that I'm like, oh, we need to get this for this to work. Um, the farm, we don't burn the house down, I'll be fine. But yeah, this is a great example of the fact that you're actually the best financial planner of your life. Like my job title is financial planner, but you are the expert. You knew all of that. Me as a financial planner, professional financial <laughs> planner, I'm not going to come in and look at your numbers on a sheet of paper and know Well, that wouldn't better. make any sense because then they would suddenly drop to no expenses. That's not true. We still spend a ton of money on food. But we would suddenly drop to that weird allocation of let's build up life around things instead of having to spend money to do vacations or sports or classes or whatever else might have taken us out of the house birthday parties for children. When you have that many people living in your house, they'll give you a break, that's every month. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of, and I knew what those expenses were, I'd had children, and I was like, okay, the cheapest I can do this for a whole class is like $250 and it's a crap party. 
but if each birthday I instead buy a popcorn machine and a cotton candy machine and a slurping machine or whatever, and then now I own those, I literally spend no money except what it costs. And we've been at that point for two years and I throw these fabulous parties that all the other parents are like, I don't understand. I'm like, because I'm a goddess. And that's exactly how I speak. So (laughs) there were choices that I made. Um, and we're coming to the end of those needing to be made, if that makes sense. So I am expecting probably definitely by Christmas, our kind of input output will be different. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of that, like I had to buy bath towels and buy one a month is 50 bucks because I'm pretentious, careful person. And one in bath towels I didn't have to throw away after four uses. But let's reiterate, if somebody if somebody's gonna say, Well, don't buy the fifty dollar bath towels. No, because I know okay, better. So are you gonna no, buy because I know better. No, 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 no. Do it every exactly, weeks. because I know better in that case. And like, so I don't have a defense to bath towel versus yes. a fifty dollar bath towel is no. not gonna get you into owning a home any faster. So But honestly, me. buying a fifty dollar one might. Because honestly, like I don't expect to replace those. At all, like my will die before they're it's a better long term investment. It is, yeah. and I feel like a lot of times we see this in poverty where you're buying replacement items so frequently that you can't get ahead. Whereas if I suffer for one month knowing I never have to buy it again, that's always my default. Not maybe the best. I don't think there's a financial planner of life that would be like, yeah, do that. But that's now we're coming to the end of that. So it's been two years of kind of building that process in because I started it as soon as I got my job and. We're coming to the end of that, which was kind of necessary as this part for me to be able to go back to school. Because I'm working full-time and going to school full-time, and I needed something that was just in place. And that's enabled that to be done. It won't take any further upkeep on our money because it was what they are. But um, that money should now stay there. So theoretically, I will have more wiggle room than I do right now. That was a long way of putting things. Oh, my God. Anyway. My grandmother used to, to buy these super cheap hoses kind of this similar example and she would have to replace them every single year. They would be, you know, a quarter of the price that the hose that my mom would have. Yeah. But my mom's hose would last a decade because she got a really nice hose. So my grandmother thought my mom was out of mind yeah. to spend that much money on a hose, but in reality my mom spent a lot less money on yes. hoses than my grandmother did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's things like that. Yeah. That's just yeah, but none of that's gonna buy you a house. So. Yeah. No, I mean it may have back in the day yeah. when you could make minimum wage and afford a house, but not now. But, but yeah, what, so what we look at is so you're you you're having money come in each month, you're having money go out each month. Um can we realistically increase the inflow? Maybe yes, maybe no. We would look at all the is always available. possible. So if I can see yeah. on paper the difference, there's a possibility that I can go hey guys, we're selling everything and we're doing this business and all of you are going to work on a weekend. It's totally possible that I would do that, but I won't do that unless there's a reason. Yeah. And it has to be an outcome that is worth that sacrifice. And it's, it doesn't sound like that makes sense, but I'm essentially the only resources that I have to increase our income would heavily rely on my kids. And so not only their cooperation or their willingness, but their reduction in time with me the reduction in quality of life and all of that has to be exchanged for something of equal value Absolutely. and just extra money so I can buy a coffee is not equal value. So I have to actually end it. Something. So yeah. I mean, that may be So, you know, yeah, we would go, are there any avenues you can pursue that are reasonable to you to increase income each month, whether it's mm-hmm. social assistance, whether it's disability assistance, whether it's employment, is there a way to increase hours that's reasonable to you? Is there a way to ask for a raise that's reasonable? Or, and I don't know the answers to these, but it's, is there a way to increase income? Yes or no. Is there a way to reduce expenses? Yes or no. And it's a non-judgmental question. Yeah. It's not a, 
where are you going to reduce expenses? It's <laughs> yeah. like, is there a way to increase income or reduce yes. expenses? Um, if yes, fantastic. We freed up some cash flow. And you mentioned that might be coming in the next few months. Yes. So maybe we could get something pre-authorized. And I do encourage pre-authorized as the best way to save. Pre-authorized doesn't mean you can never change it. It doesn't oh, yeah. mean, oh, I agreed to do $25. Yeah, my TFSA was pre-authorized and just kept lowering the amount. Hopefully, yeah. I wouldn't need to take it out. It never works. So we, we would do pre-authorized, but we would also then take advantage. So if we can free up some cash flow, either by increasing income or reducing expenses without unreasonably affecting quality of life or exploiting your children, for goodness sake. Like, none of those are reasonable. I'm just um, spitballing. Yeah. I don't have to use child slavery as an example. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but yeah. it's interesting because something just occurred to me and I know I've been going on, but you were talking about being trauma informed. And I know that it's a trigger for a lot of people in poverty to start looking at restrictions because you can certainly choose to do things and that's more like freedom. But then being like, okay, well, no, we're not going to use that money. And then experiencing what that looks like. So you're at the store, you're, what's a toy and you cannot get it because you've already allocated that money elsewhere. That's triggering. And that might make everything fall down. So to like, just keep in mind, I think, as you're moving forward with women, particularly in poverty, because it's very triggering about children. I have no idea what it's like for people without children who go through this. But I know that that's like such a huge thing. That would make everything fail because you will instantly go back to what is safe. And this is what I need. And this is what I'm safe. And that's what means they're safe. And so and putting outside of that is bad. $50 and trying TFSA is not comparing to yeah. solving my child's need right now. And Absolutely it, it could be completely unreasonable and insane, but it'll be the perception of the person who's experienced trauma and is relating this experience to it. And so that's where you can see that. And so just being like aware that that can happen might lend, you know, some creativity to you to be able to help them problem solve or just to anticipate like, Hey, you might experience this. And if you do, that's okay. Then we just change whatever it is that pulls this out so that, that would, it'll be a little bit less. And then if you want me to check in and be like, hey, do you want us to put it back up or whatever, you're willing to invest in this person that way. Um, you can do that with that awareness because um, I know that a lot of times people in poverty, just you can't get away from you feel guilty, you feel wrong, you feel like you don't have value. So to invest in yourself is already a huge leap. To mess up, after someone else has invested their time in you is bad. And then you'll once again feel like you shouldn't be doing this. It might be some steps and it'll be on the person and what they've gone through or where they are with like unpacking all of those things. You can encounter quite a bit. So just the way that your client had said that you were trauma informed, I bet you're, you're hitting some of those points already. So you're probably already doing it great. Um, but I, those are just some things that I could see happening that someone with the best intentions might suddenly feel like they're failing at it. And then once you just pull back into the safety zone, which was before I was doing these actions. Um, so it's complicated and could be mm -hmm. difficult, but anyways, another segue. Sorry. Yeah, we would look at, you know, is there anything pre-authorized that we can be doing? And thank you so much for that input on, because that's really valuable. I can only be trauma informed in things that I either have experience in or things that I've heard others experience in. So I really appreciate that and knowing that important to that conversation would be preempting or saying, and that's okay if this occurs. You know, these are some of the things that might happen or how you might feel and that's okay. Or like, that's important for me to know and yeah. to learn. So we would look at that or just taking advantage of what are the things available if there's no resources to be allocated to a savings plan or to an insurance plan right now, 
what can we take advantage of just by opening a plan? And so have I turned someone's world upside down and made it magically better? Probably not, but can I You'd be surprised. Get... It often doesn't take as much as people think. Well, there you go. Yeah. Somebody, Somebody opening, opening a, a savings account yeah. and saving for their future, they have to acknowledge that they're worth saving for. So you're already helping them in, in a massive way. So yeah, I wouldn't overly minimize anything that you do. Absolutely not. But yeah, there are plans that you can open just if someone's a certain age, if somebody qualifies for the disability tax, certain things you can do, you get money just for opening those accounts. So at the very least, at the very least, if I can help somebody do that, that's what I will do. Yeah. And if there's anything pre-authorized that we can do that we modify over So is that kind of the approach that say I had had, I mean, easy, so I don't choke and die. Easy wiggle room is $300 a month. That's what I usually say. We're short. I can borrow this. I know I can pay it back on my next paycheck. So I'll say three hundred a month. No, that's six hundred a month. So pre-estimates of three hundred per paycheck if I have to. It just means with a really great saving plan are doing six hundred dollars a month. Okay, really decent. That would be really hard for me because in those decisions, that's why I have to see the full thing because I can do that. But if I have four thousand dollars sitting in that account at Christmas, my option is. Not buying Christmas presents or buying Christmas. I'm going to have no self-restraint. So that's why I'm saying are there other options other than just a savings account? Or like if that wiggle yes. room, if I had said, here's this option. What should we do knowing that this is my tendency? This is how I recognize my trauma. I know at Christmas time, I start being really re-stimulated, being like, oh, I could have buy presents. I have to buy presents. But I'm also consciously aware now that I don't need to and that I could take responsibility for some of my trauma behaviors by having a different plan. Are there other options that we can look at? So yes, there are simple, you could open, for example, a tax-free savings account, which you've done before. There's no penalty and there's no tax to take money out. And it sometimes can feel almost a little bit too easy. Yeah, that's what I was so thinking. So all it, you know, and yeah. especially if it's at your same bank. So yeah. let's say you have a bank account with simply, I'll just make up the name of an institution. Um, formerly President's Choice. So you have your bank account with Simply and you open a tax-free savings account with Simply. So it's on your app. You open yep. it up and your savings account is here. You have $12 in it and your TFSA is here and you have $812 in it. And Christmas comes yep. and you go, well, I have $812 sitting there. All it is is the click of a button to move it over. It's really simple to do that. So if somebody truly just wants less access to it, and it's funny because some people are afraid of having less access yeah. to it and some people are afraid of having too much access to it. So if it's a matter of, I just need to, I need it to not be there every time I open up my bank account, a lot mm -hmm. of people find that, that, that space that they find just by opening it at a different institution is enough for them. It depends on the person, See, but like, so I didn't even realize you could do that. The only mm -hmm. reason I was putting anything into it is because it was on my app and mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, what's that? Oh, I should put money in it. And yeah. I did. So the way it would work if you open a TFSA with a financial advisor, with myself, it would be Investia. They're the mutual fund dealership, but it could be with whichever advisor, whichever dealership they're with. So with me, you would have an Investia app, either on your mobile or you could go on the website, on a computer, and you can find it there, but you actually have to open the app to find it. So it's going to be separate from your bank account. If you want money from it, you can't actually get it yourself. You have to call or 
email me and it's back in your checking account within five business days. Oh yeah, that wouldn't solve any of my emergency oh, need to just ramble up money. So it would be totally safe because so by that, five yeah. days I've come up with another solution. Okay. So for some people, some people might panic about that, yeah. but others might go, that's exactly what I need. Where mm. yes, the money's still mine. It's still there. The money's not gone, but it's, it's just removed enough that it's, it's a little bit annoying. Yeah. I, mean, I don't count on my rent being available for me to spend for food either. So I am capable of navigating without mm -hmm. access. I just haven't been successful in trying to implement that in a smaller way. Yeah. And I use that exact technique as well, where uh, I do have some savings within my main bank account and I can transfer. Click button. So, yeah. so I have a TFSA that I'll have my money in just so I can get a little interest and then I'll move up. But there's also the aspect of having different apps that I would have to go in to access different savings so that I can not be tempted by that, yeah. that main one. Well, and one of the common feelings we get from folks is um, when they first become clients, a couple of months later, they'll go, I've never felt so broke in my life. Meanwhile, they're building assets, but they can't see it. So it's it's this sense of relief and also frustration of like, I've never felt so broke before. <laughs> I, lo I love uh, Mint.com for that reason, because it compiles all of those different sources into one place and I can just look at it and go, so if say someone gets a job at Starbucks, say I go get a job at Starbucks and I'm working four hours a week and that comes out to like, I guess, 900 extra dollars a month. Um, but 300 of that is like going to be me driving and having to pay insurance and gas and blah, blah, blah. So I have $600 extra income now. What could we do with that other than just stick it into savings, which I think is like, I know I could do that, but could we do something more proactive with that if I had that? Absolutely. So when it came time for our recommendation meeting, so we would have had our planning meeting where we looked at where are you now with regards to those four areas, where would you like to be? I will have prepared a summary of, okay, here are, there, here are the gaps between your current scenario and your ideal scenario in each of those four categories. So we would come back for a recommendation meeting in person, virtually, whatever the case may be. And at that point, I would ask you to prioritize. So of liquidity and retirement and financial security, if you were sick or hurt, financial security at death, which is your top priority? Which one doesn't really matter to you at all? And you've already expressed, okay, retirement is pretty low on the priority list for me. So I mainly want to focus, and forgive me if I'm putting mm -hmm. words in your mouth, but I mainly want to focus on liquidity, having money available for emergencies and opportunities for my kids' education, maybe. Who knows? You, you fill in the blanks of what it is. Um, saving for emergencies, as well as financial security in the event that I pass away. I want my kids to be okay. So I might be putting words in your mouth. No, that's sufficient. Yeah. Let's say those are your two sure. biggest priorities. Um, I would provide, provide you sort of, I have a visual map almost of what tools are available right. to get you there. So you've got your accumulation tools, your tax-free savings account, your RRSP, and I'll go through, we would spend an entire hour on this. So don't okay. worry about the acronyms and the journals. Yeah, like I would go through all of it. Um, so the accumulation tools and the protection tools, um, if you had $600 per month of cash flow that you want to allocate towards your top two or three priorities, so liquidity, financial security, if you pass away, we would look at implementing firstly some life insurance mm -hmm. to take care of that priority. You know, if right. I pass away, I've got... Is it nine kids? Well, no, it's at least six, but... <laughs> you know. So I've got... I've got six kids living under my roof that are relying on my income. And if I pass away, I need to make sure that they've got. I want the ability for them to continue. Yes. Yeah. Which then at minimum would be 29 a month. So yeah. Without me being there. 
So, yeah. so you'd want to make sure that probably thirty five hundred per month rent, and then some additional maybe four thousand per month would be available for the next fifteen or twenty years. So we'd want to create a pot of money big enough to generate that money for them, and you would leave it to your kids and name a trustee for that money. So mm-hmm. somebody who could help manage that money for them until they're of age. Right. As far as liquidity, we would open a tax free savings account. Now, a lot of people think that a TFSA is just sort of a high interest savings account. It earns a little bit of interest and that can be a TFSA, but a TFSA can also be a shell for any type of risk investment. You could put low risk, medium risk, high risk. You can choose to have a fossil fuel free portfolio, for example, if you'd like. So you can have investment in companies involved in oil and gas, or you can avoid companies involved in that. You can choose to invest in companies involved in technology or health sciences or all sorts of different things. And we can tailor that TFSA to match whatever risk tolerance is okay for you, as well as to correspond with your values. So we focus on those two things, life insurance and tax-free savings account. And we'd set it up on a pre-authorized contribution. That doesn't mean that you can't change it in a given month or in a given pay period, but we would set it up to pull it automatically from your checking account on a regular basis. And if you need to make changes here or there, we definitely could. And then we'd revisit in a few months and see how it's going. Yeah, I would totally love to do that. Sounds awesome. So this brings me to my last question, which is what sorts of societal changes would you like to see to help reduce the impacts of wealth inequity? in our society? I can say that I would like to see more education being made available, especially to young people. I think right now that information and education is available to people of a certain um, wealth standard, and is it readily available to everybody else? And I feel like if it was more um, commonplace to come across, you'd see that society as a whole would benefit from that. Absolutely. 100% agree with needing education on finances that in probably in high school would be a good time to address that. And it'd be great. I hear that impact that feedback a lot from clients actually is why wasn't this taught in schools? And so that means that the only folks who had access to the information were the ones who felt comfortable and welcome to sit with a financial advisor. So I feel that what I can do in that is make my service more welcoming and accessible to more folks. So If it's not, in fact, available in schools, and let's address that. Let's make it available in schools. But also, when folks are adults, let's make it more welcoming and inclusive. And also, in terms of societal changes, I would like to see to have effects on wealth inequity, at least in Canada, because I don't pretend to have the answers for globally speaking. I mean, the amount of wealth disparity and inequity is is more than I can even grasp or begin to grasp. So I'd like to rely on others around me who have experience globally in that regard, but within Canada, within, you know, locally, I would really like to see within, within Canada and within North America, I'd like to see business owners in particular, but anybody who is in a position of privilege, be conscientious about how you spend that privilege. If you're in a position where you're earning more than what you need in order to live, you have have additional choices to make. You know, how, how do you want to spend that privilege? How do you want, do you have an interest in redistributing wealth in any regard, whether that's offering employment opportunities, meaningful employment opportunities, 
marginalized folks, not just offering a living wage or a minimum wage, but offering a thriving wage, bridging the divide of, of how much you make versus your next highest paid employee, for example. Um, I would love to see there continue to be more and more conversations focused on social justice. And the more success you enjoy and the more success you find and have, be conscientious of how you spend that and how, how you might be able to share that with others in a meaningful manner. Like investing in people and thereby investing in society. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Ethical investments, making sure that we have better education. I think those are all really important pieces in making sure that wealth and equity is not affecting people as severely as it is currently. And I think that's a great place to end this podcast as well. So thank you both for taking the time to join me today on this podcast to talk about wealth and equity. I think it's a really important subject. I think we had some really great conversations. And we'll see the audience again in the next one. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.